Blog Talk Radio. Please stay tuned for Brandon's Buzz. I'm Joan Van Ark, and the buzz is hot. This is Gloria Loring, and I've just been buzzed by Brandon, and I gave Brandon some buzz. This is Maya Bialik, and you are lucky enough to be listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Gordon Thompson speaking. And I want to tell you that I have appeared on Brandon's Buzz, and I had a great time. And I think you will too, so please log on and have a listen. You know I would not be committed by a jury of my peers. Still crazy after all these years. Don't you just want to sing right along with her? I tell you what, it's one of the great, great songs, and I've got one of the great, great ladies on the phone. Welcome to Brandon's Buzz, everybody. February 25th, it is 1 p.m. here in Texas, it's 2 p.m. back east, and it's 11 a.m. In the, in the west, so wherever you're listening from, however you're listening, thank you for tuning in. Uh, it's going to be a great show. Some quick program notes. Friday morning, um, let's see, it's 10 a.m. Pacific, so it's 1 p.m., Eastern Time, I have a fantastic interview with a spectacular lady named Nia Peoples. She came to our national intention, good Lord, 25 years ago uh, as, as a member of the cast of Fame. She's been on Walker, Texas Rangers. She's young, young and the restless now, and she is a, a pop singer, and she is a, a fitness expert, and she is just a fantastic lady, and I can't wait for that interview. That's Friday morning, and I've got a full week next week. I've got Austin singer-songwriter Anna Eggy on Monday. I've got... Uh, former General Hospital star Rayal Andrews on Tuesday. I've got uh, a couple of great ladies who run a One Tree Hill website on Wednesday. And I've got a great lady named Claire Massey who was the lead singer of a 90s band called Tammy Show on Thursday. Uh, so it's a full week next week. It's a full week later this week, and it's a great show today. I have a great, great artist on the phone. And, you know, she was one of the country stars of the 80s. And her fascinating, soulful, instantly recognizable voice Sweet but gruff, equal parts Tammy Wynette and Janis Joplin brought her a stunning string of 20 top 40 country hits throughout that great decade, including Taking It Easy, 16th Avenue, and Black Coffee. She stepped away from Nashville's incessant glare in the early 90s, though she still performs and records regularly, and of late she has gotten seriously involved with the plight of Nevada's endangered wild horses and is helping to write legislation toward their protection. And she has graciously dropped by the buzz this afternoon to talk about all of this and much more. What a genuine honor it is and a great thrill to welcome to my show today the incredible, the brilliant Lacey J. Dalton. <laughs> Hi, Brandon. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. I just had a, I just had a mind-boggling experience. You, you played uh, this cut of Still Crazy. and, and Absolutely. Had, but I didn't know it was me. I haven't heard it in so long, and I thought, gee, you know, that artist did, that artist did uh, Still Crazy, too. And I thought it was the, the woman who, uh, Lori, somebody that you had on, she was giving you uh, kudos about ha- having a great time on your show. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought, gee, I really like that girl's voice. And then I, realized, <laughs> I don't sound like that anymore because my voice now is much lower. 
Absolutely. You know and, what? Of uh, all... I, I didn't know it was me. I'm listening and, and I'm going, yeah, well, you know, I, that girl. <laughs> but I was appreciating me, which normally when I'm listening to me, I don't. I, you know, I, I just sit there and say, oh, I've done that. Why didn't you do that better? Why don't you know? You could have held back there. You didn't have to yeah, do that, yeah. Lick. <laughs> you know, my whole thing is I'm always trying to simplify, simplify, simplify. I don't want to do every lick I'm capable of because I think uh-huh. it tires the ear after a long time of listening to, um, you know, vocal acrobatics. You get tired of it. I get tired Absolutely. of it myself. But it's so funny. I probably haven't heard that song since I cut it. <laughs> and I really, truly didn't know it was me. <laughs> and let me tell you something. Of, of all the songs you've done, that is my absolute favorite. It is, is the it? best. It well, is. Paul Simon I love it. Songs, huh? <laughs> <laughs> sure does. <laughs> and it's still true. I am still crazy after all these <laughs> Which you know, which leads me. I just had a meeting. Do you guys uh, have you ever heard of uh, Caesar Milan, the Dog Whisperer? Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, seen his show on TV. Well, I had a meeting with his producer about doing a reality show um, about my life and and because my life is it's a little different i live up uh in the the mountains above reno nevada near the old western town of um virginia city which is just wow. like it was 150 years ago wow. i mean the saloons still have some of the same um they probably still have the same paintings on the walls i'm sure if you removed a painting there'd be a big white spot behind it and it's still like the old west up here you know people Absolutely. still people routinely dress in period costumes and, um, I, you know, I, I don't know where I was going with all this, but my life is a little bit <laughs> less uh, predictable, I think, than a lot of people's. And I have these crazy people in my life. <laughs> I have, you know, I have my... I am now in the host queue with just the announcement in my ear. What does that mean, Brendan? Oh, I have... You know what? So, that happened to some other guest that I had <laughs> on a couple of weeks ago, and, and I don't... It's one of the I mean, quirks of the... You need to do being... a commercial. Yeah. <laughs> It's one of the quirks the of the system here. We just kind of ignore it and go on. But I see. It's just just like the when the when you don't put your seatbelt on the on the car yeah. and the, and Betty is just constantly going beep beep beep. <laughs> anyway, exactly. It's, it, this is just typical of what happens to me in an interview. You know, you won't see this in a Reba McIntyre interview. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> anyway, um, so I had a, a wonderful meeting with the producer of that show. And I was telling her that I, I thought we should do a reality show for my house called The Last Wild Place because wow. I have characters in my life that are not to be believed. <laughs> I have Ledbetter, the toothless former male model, six foot four, <laughs> now toothless, who was my butler for a long time. He wasn't actually my butler, but that's what I called him while he was oh living. My. He was a tree guy who fell from a tree and hurt his back, so he cannot do tree work, but maybe a third of the time, and other times as a short order cook, or takes care of people's ranches like mine when I go on the road. Uh-huh. And I, I had a, a, an experience with Ledbetter that uh, I told the producer, I said, I walked in one day, and here is Ledbetter, who is completely naked. I'm looking at him from the back. He is vacuuming my living room, totally in the nude. <laughs> I wanted, and he was so white. It was like, it was like, he burned the retinas of my eyes. I wanted to put my eyes out with my thumbs. And I said, Ledbetter, for God's sake, get some clothes on before you hurt yourself <laughs> or before I have to put my eyes out. But, I mean, this is the sort of thing that, that, that happens. And, I, you know, I have my gay dwarf hairdresser, Izzy, who is a complete um, theatrical, wonderful person who has done my hair for 30 years. <laughs> and, you know, off and on, he's not really responsible. The way you, you guys see me with this fuzzy hair, uh-huh. you know, my hair is curly. 
And um, I don't always go to Izzy as often as I should. So I don't know what kind of an advertisement I am for him. But, <laughs> but we're really good friends. And it's just a trip. He's here. And then we have uh, William R. Strickland, who is my roommate, who has not – he's actually paid me rent now for two months, but he won't come home because he knows <laughs> I'm going to yell at him because his room is so horrible. I actually threw him out because he was such a pig to live with. <laughs> I looked in his room the other day while he was gone – it was unbelievable. It looked like a hobo lived in there. There were like <laughs> cans of rotting beans and old cups with coffee rotting in them. And we was just, you know, his his little house is sort of detached from my house. Uh-huh. But I mean, it's fetid in there. You you know, you 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 can't even I opened the door and went, "Oh my god." So when he called, I said, "William, I looked in your room today." And he went, "Oh my god." <laughs> I said, "I threw you out of here for being a Slob, and I said you have not changed a bit. And he said, "Well, I know, but I'm having someone come to clean." I said, "William, you've been gone for two months." He said, "I know. I can't get in the room." So he's been paying me rent and renting a hotel somewhere, and he is like a cross between um, Boxcar Willie and Robin Williams. Oh my god! I mean, he is so funny. You know, I and I, I was just yelling at him about his room. I was so mad. And he's got a studio. I have a m- music studio in the other end of the house, and he's got that completely destroyed. There are boxes and tins and things piled up, and you can't walk in it. And so I'm really giving him the devil about, about his room. I'm just giving him all kinds of crap about his room. And he looks at me and goes, well, I guess that means sex is out of the question. <laughs> 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 William is William now weighs a good three thirty, and 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 as a young man was was quite beautiful, a sort of Marlon Brando wow. looking fellow, and had every woman in the world, every woman I ever knew, had affairs with William and always took care of him. I've known him for forty years, but anyway, these are the kind these are the cast of characters that are in my life on a daily basis. Well, William hasn't been on a daily basis because he's avoiding his room. So. And, but that is, you know, that's sort of what goes on around here. I have three dogs down from six. This is actually called the Six Dog Ranch because I normally I was in dog rescue for years, and you don't get them all adopted out. You know, some absolutely, them, yeah. Some of them just stay around. Some of them you want to stay around. <laughs> and I love I love animals. And as you were telling your audience earlier, I do have a foundation for the preservation and protection of wild horses. Absolutely, yeah. let them run. Yes, it's called Let Them Run, and, and you guys, if you're interested, can access our website at uh, letthemrun.com or .org. And we have up here on the Comstock, which is um, Reno, Nevada, sits down in a deep valley between the Sierra Nevada on the west where uh, Lake Tahoe is. Mm-hmm. And toward the east is a smaller mountain range called the Virginia Range, where the largest gold and silver strike in history was hit. Um, John Mackey and James Farr um, hit the largest gold and silver load ever called the Comstock Load up here. So we call this area the Comstock, and it is a beautiful um, high desert with pine um, pinyon trees all around. It's not exactly um, green like the forest green that I grew up in with in Pennsylvania where I grew up, but it's um, beautiful rock formations. The rocks are all wonderful colors of reds and oranges and you know even purples and tans it's, it's amazing it's, it's stunning it's stunning, it's stunning. I, I was out there with my beloved a couple of years ago we went to lake tahoe for 
for uh, uh, a few days in July, and my God, it was one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. I mean, it was... It is Lake Tahoe is gorgeous and and um and it's only really forty five minutes from from my house, which is on the smaller mountain range across the the uh, what we call the Truckee Meadows, which is a wide valley where Reno and Carson City and Gardnerville and Minden are all in this long, long valley at the foot of the Sierras. The um Virginia Range is to the northern end of of that valley and in sitting up um just about i my house is about 12 minutes up on the mountain from the reno uh from the actual bottom of the valley floor unbelievable and about 25 minutes from the reno airport okay. so that no matter how bad the weather is and the weather is pretty severe up here sometimes i can get to that airport and get out to do shows Absolutely. and it took me three and a half years to find this place <laughs> You know, because I wanted to live up here. I played all the clubs in Reno for years and years. I worked for Harris for 20 years, and I worked for um, the Nugget for about 15 years, and still, you know, occasionally do shows there, corporate things, and the Silver Legacy and uh, Pepper Mill. There are a lot of clubs up here that I worked, and I fell in love with this place and made friends here. And then uh, I was up in Virginia City one night, which is about just about 40 minutes up the mountain or 30 minutes, really, from the very bottom of the valley um, where Reno, South Reno sits, up to the old town of Virginia City. And I live okay. about halfway between. I live about 12 minutes up that mountain, okay. which is the a mountain on the Virginia Range. We call it the Geiger Grade, the old road that was built to bring the railroad up here. It's a switchback road, and a lot of people hate it, but when you drive up this road, you totally leave that large... Reno has become a very big city. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the fastest, it's, the, I think, the second or third fastest growing city in the United States. And it's a wonderful place to live because you're so you're close to California. You can go up to Lake Tahoe in a minute. You can sure. down in Sacramento in three hours um, and down to the Bay Area in about six. So you're very, very close to a lot of really wonderful stuff that, that's available all the time in, in, in the vicinity here. Yet you are in, in wilderness. In the Old West. Yeah, we are yeah. truly li- in a living museum of the Old West up here. This is the largest historic landmark district in the country. Wow. And it's comprised of the old towns of Virginia City, uh, Gold Hill, Silver City, and the oldest, arguably the oldest uh, city in Nevada, Dayton, Nevada. They argue with Genoa, which is down toward Gardnerville, um, as to who is the oldest, and, and no one has been able to prove. You know, there's this incredible rivalry between these little villages. But uh, uh, we say that Dayton is the oldest just because okay. it's the closest one to us, and it's in the historic landmark district. And you know what? Here, cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but but wasn't Virginia City home to one of the most uh, renowned opera houses in the world? It is, and that opera house is – I'm still on advisory board for the old Piper's Opera House. It's still there. It's still there, and I've done oh, wow. the most wonderful performances there. You cannot do a bad performance on that stage because the echoes of the likes of Lily Langtree and Maude Adams and Mark Twain and you know some of the great Civil War generals, there is oh. so much history in that building. It's being, wow. uh, it's being redone, and it's, it's, it's absolutely fabulous. It's a wonderful place to visit up here. This is the largest historic landmark district and probably the – least visited one in the United States, and things have not been gentrified. It's still, 
you know, sometimes they'll take an old town like Jamestown and they completely clean it up and until it becomes so gentrified, it loses some of that. Mm-hmm. To me, it loses some authenticity in that process. It's history. It loses its history. It, it kind of – well, it or – it just gets a little too shiny, clean, and ready, yeah, for, exactly. yeah. ready for company. And loses in a town like this, which was a very rough, tough town. It was uh, the richest city in the United States at one time because uh, James Mackey was the richest man in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, when they discovered the, the Comstock Lode, they became the richest men in the world, James Farr and, and John Mackey. Wow. And, um up here we have the largest contiguous herd of wild horses in the United States. And it is a herd of about 1,400 horses, and it somehow fell through the cracks. Most wild horses are protected uh, to some degree by the federal government. These horses, the, the Bureau of Land Management came through here, and I believe it was in the 40s, and said there are no horses in this area. Well, the bottom line is horses are migratory animals, and they migrate for hundreds of miles they used to be able to. Now it's a little harder with, you know, fences and freeways and so on that they can't get across. <laughs> but we do have a large herd of horses that live here. And those horses um, were, back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, hay was $800 a ton up on this mountain in silver coin only. They wouldn't even take paper money for it. It was very hard to get. And $800 back in the late 1800s was like thousands of dollars now. You bet. The ordinary people couldn't keep their horses over the winter. You know, ordinary uh, carriage horses and even some of the dray animals, the draft animals that pulled the milk wagons and things like that, they simply could not afford to keep them. So they would turn them out into these hills, hoping that they would survive until the next spring. And mm-hmm. Mark Twain, in one of his stories, tells about how these mountains looked with littered with hundreds of their carcasses, <laughs> the ones that didn't make it. Wow. But the ones that did make it interbred with the wild horses that were migrating through and created a herd of very, very hardy horses called the Comstock Herd. And that herd is, is a herd that I am primarily interested in. I, my foundation, we we're, uh, protect horses all over the country, and I frequently mm-hmm. send... Um, donations to uh, out-of-state sanctuaries that get in trouble, say their fences burn in a fire, or they have to suddenly move 300 horses from here to there. Um, We always assist those people whenever we can. But primarily, I am trying to save the largest contiguous herd of wild horses and perhaps one of the few genetically viable herds because of its size left in the United States. These are beautiful, healthy animals and our department, State Department of Agriculture, has neither the money nor the manpower to manage the problem, and they just want to get rid of them. They want to send them to sale, which means slaughter. That means wow. they will be bought by a killer buyer who will not kill the horses himself, but will transport him to Canada or Mexico, where our Western heritage will be slaughtered for meat on someone's dinner plate in another country. Mm-mm-mm. And, you know, I don't know very many people who want that to happen. They in our area, 83% of the people in northern Nevada believe in the preservation protection of the wild horse. However, the horses need to be managed. And that is the, the goal of my foundation, Let Them Run, is to provide sanctuary for these horses and then to manage their numbers. You know, to keep them from, you know, overwhelming whatever uh, area they have to, to uh, live in. Exactly. That's, 
the main push, and I do have some legislation going, but I've been talking nonstop. I want to hear you talk now for a while. <laughs> no, you know what? I'm so curious about this, though. Uh, what, what kind of what kind of acreage are we talking about here in terms of, or square mileage in terms of in terms of the room that these horses have to live and run and and you know be themselves? I mean, what kind of well, what let kind me of... tell you. Let me tell you what has happened. Um, I have uh, in. I'm having a bill written right now, and the language has not been determined yet exactly. We're mm-hmm. um, hoping that the language will be such that we can maintain um, the endorsement. I have the endorsement now of the pre- nine-time president of the National Cattlemen's Association and the chairman of Public Lands of the United States, John Fallon's endorsement. I have the endorsement uh, from the uh, president, Dan Gralian, of the Nevada Cattlemen's Association. We have the Nevada Farm Bureau endorsement for this uh, legislation that we're trying to pass, which would give landowners who are willing to let wild horses run on their land the same agricultural tax deferment that they would get for cattle and sheep. Because every horse that is taken off the the, the uh, open land and put in a facility costs the public between $1,000 and $1,500 a year. It's not necessary. If we if we provide sanctuary for these horses, and I have letters of support from the largest industrial park in the world, who has they have about 80,000 acres, okay. that they are willing to allow these horses to be on, should the language of the legislation be correctly drafted. Uh, I have a letter from them saying, yes, we do want the horses. We would like to have them. We would like to get this ag deferment for our ag- already agricultural lands. They have cattle now. They'd like to... Um, They'd like to run the horses instead. Excellent. We also have um, from a smaller but still very about 20,000 acre uh, industrial park and uh, an equine. They're going to do an equine uh, housing development, sort of a horse-friendly, um, you know, ranchette development. They want to have the, some of the horses run on their land. So I have letters from these. And is this is this all in Nevada, or are we talking about moving this, them somewhere else? No, this is all in Nevada. Okay. We'd, what we'd like to do is get this legislation passed in Nevada, create a pilot program that may be able to be adopted by, you know, in wild where wild horses are uh, challenged in other areas all over the United States. If we can give an agricultural tax deferment to a landowner willing to um, take these horses. Um, and we're really talking about a relatively small number of horses in this case, in, in our local case. We're talking about fourteen, about 1,400 horses, okay. and maybe not even that many, because up where I live in the Virginia Highlands, we have 37,000 acres where all the homeowners like to have the horses. We like them because they eat the cheat grass that causes wildfires up here, and we you. like them because we like them. So we're up where I live. There's 37,000 acres, which is contiguous with the 80,000 and the 20,000 acres okay. down below. On the, you know, we're up in the mountains where there isn't anything to eat in the winter. They're exactly. down below where the horses naturally are. The nice thing about the fact that these uh, industrial parks are willing to consider having the horses there is it's where the horses are anyway. That it, we wouldn't have to move any horses anywhere. Okay. So and I've been so working it's, it's on this just a matter of 10... it's just a matter of protecting them where they are, basically. Basically, that's what it is. If the landowners where they are are willing to accept them for an agricultural tax exemption, 
then we we don't have to move horses, we don't have to remove horses. We don't all we need to do is control the populations, which is a, easy now with birth control. There's a very good birth control, two year one called PZP. There's one that they're working on called GNRX that's a four year shot, which uh, is about seventy percent effective to the third year as far as they can tell. And then there's somebody down at Davis actually working on a seven-year shot, which kind of scares me because that's a long time to do birth control. Huh. But um, if, if these shots, uh, one of the things we'd like to do is conduct some studies, particularly uh, on the four-year vaccine, um, to see if we can – I think if we can find a four-year um, anti-fertility shot – um, for wild horses that doesn't cause two-headed babies and, and miscarriages mm-hmm. and abortions and so on. I think that we're going to be a long way toward managing. The, the federal government just had a nightmare. They just had a nightmare happen. Their appropriate management level of wild horses in the West, they say, is 27,000 horses. That's all. Okay. They had, in addition to the 27,000 on the open range, they had allowed the populations to increase to another 33,000 that were in facilities. Now, that's a huge burden on the taxpayer, mm-hmm. and it's a miserable life in some of the facilities. Now, some mm-hmm. places they turn them out on ranches, and the horses have a decent life till they die. But on in some of the facilities, we have one here called Palomino Valley that's uh, over very close to um, uh, Sparks, Nevada. And it is, there is, there, there's just huge feedlots with no shade, for the horses, no shelter from the wind, just these big corrals where the horses are in sun, rain, you know, and they it, there's not a blade of grass to be seen, and they're run by the Bureau of Land Management. The horses generally aren't there for very long, but sometimes they're there for long periods of time, and it's just not it's just not a life for those animals. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the it, the federal government just put out a cry for help and said they were going to have to euthanize 33,000 wild horses. Well, just about nobody anywhere wanted that to happen. In fact, the cattlemen were upset about it. A whole bunch of them um, called the offices of the the Cattlemen's Association, United States Cattlemen's Association. The cattlemen self always perceived as enemies of the horses. They're not the enemies of the horses. They are the enemies of mismanagement of the horses. That is what the cattlemen object to, the fact that these horses are not birth controlled in some way or other. And um, I really understand the plight of a lot of cattlemen because what happens um, – well, let me first tell you the miracle that happened. So we have 33,000 horses that are going to be – first they were said euthanized and they said slaughtered. Everybody went crazy, and T. Boone Pickens – do you know who T. Boone Pickens is? I sure is? do. You know, I was I was born north of Amarillo, so... So, so you um, know T. Boone Pickens. <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> well, T. Boone Pickens has apparently married a saint named Madeline. And Madeline and T. Boone stepped forward and said, we will take all 33,000 wow. of these wild horses, and we will somehow... I apparently, uh, the news broke before T. Boone and Madeline were, were quite prepared... Uh, to take the horses, they were talking about it, and I guess someone broke the news. It, at least it's to my understanding that this is what happened. It may not be, but I what I was told was that they had not purchased the land yet. They were just 
saying, "Hey, we're not going to let this happen. This is mm-hmm. this is uh, this is an atrocity. This is wrong." And so they have uh, committed. I think they're asking the federal government now to hold those thirty-three thousand for one more year while they get land and get ready to to do. I personally think that the federal government ought to give them a million acres. The horses, I believe, I want to say in 1971. I am the fountain of misinformation in this way. But I believe they were given something like 27 million acres in the 1971 Wild Horses and Burrows Preservation Act. And gradually Congress has been taking off big chunks of that land and reducing the horse management areas to smaller and smaller and smaller, mostly without the knowledge of the American people who gave the millions of acres in the first place. <laughs> Surely somewhere the Bureau of Land Management has a million acres since they have created this problem that they could lease to uh, or or even give to the Pickens to uh, run these horses. I don't know why that hasn't happened. Um, I, I can't see what the harm would be. That herd will be a sterile herd because in order to get those any horses from the federal government, they have to be, you know, you can't be breeding wild horses because we have way more than we need right now already yeah in fact if anybody out there wants to adopt a wild horse <laughs> you go to um go to a website called kbrhorse.net okay and they'll tell you they're in that's a group called least resistance training concepts and my friend willis lamb runs it and they uh are i'm not i'm not sure but i believe they're in 37 states and they do adoptions the federal government also does wonderful horse adoptions and these horses are not scrawny awful-looking horses, a lot of them are very, very beautiful animals, and they look like everything because everything's been there. Quarter horse stallions have been introduced. Thoroughbred stallions have been introduced. They even had Percherons introduced up here in the 40s to breed big horses to pull wagons for the military. So we have uh, horses, wild horses can look like anything. They can look like a hunter jumper. They can look like a Shetland pony. Most of ours up here are kind of small very, very good endurance horses. They're winning all kinds of stuff in endurance. Excellent. But um, we have a we have a lot of really great looking horses up here, and their feet and are great. Are 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 they are they approachable? Do they interact with humans at all, or or not? Well, really? yeah, they do. In fact, up here in the Highlands, everybody feeds them. Excellent. Um, my roommates were. I don't generally do that because I I think wild horses should be wild. But uh, yesterday, I saw my roommates were out on the porch uh, feeding carrots out of their hands to a wild band that had walked through my yard. <laughs> you know, and it's dangerous to do that because they are wild animals, and if they get yeah. scared, they can run you down, you know. Uh-huh, exactly. And I don't like to get them too friendly. Myself, I don't like to feed them, uh, hand-feed them or anything, because I feel as though it's a danger to themselves and to the people that are doing it. But people do it all the time, and they're so tame, some of them up here. But you get out in the hinterlands and of course they see you and if you get too close now if you walk up and you don't you know you keep your head down and mm-hmm. and you kind of gently walk up to a herd you can sit in the middle of a wild herd and generally they will come over and sniff you and um we have films of this we did a film for tourism here willis lamb and and our uh one of our great equine experts craig downer and i did a, a film for tourism for nevada and it's on a 12 Horses Media uh, website, and I think that's 12horsesmedia.com, and I think you go to um, 
something about Nevada and wild horses. I can't remember now, but you can see that film on the Internet. Okay. And uh, it actually shows some of the crew that went with us from 12 Horses, uh, some of the, the cameramen and, and uh, the producer. The horses actually came up and were kissing her hair. She was sitting quietly on a rock, wow. and this is a fairly wild herd. So they're very curious. They're very polite. We don't encourage people to go up to them. In fact, it's you know we really discourage it because they are huge. The stallions can strike with their you know have a tendency to strike with their front feet, and they can kill you. Mm-hmm. And the mares tend to have a tendency to you know haul off and kick you if you don't move correctly around them. Mm-hmm. So, and you know they're just a big animal, and they can hurt you. So it's just like the grizzly bears in Yellowstone. You don't want to walk up and feed them a chocolate bar. <laughs> you want to you want to watch them from a distance. And what we hope to do once we get the horses, um, this agricultural tax diversion. One of the uh, industrial uh, companies is interested in doing a place where the public can interact with the horses in a non-invasive way like we do at Yellowstone Park or any of the national parks where you can observe the horses but you don't mess with them. And they want to do trail rides out where people can take photographs and maybe even do some Jeep tours and or uh, golf carts you know, for people who are disabled so they can go out and get close to the herds and take pictures because there really is no reliable place here in Nevada that I'm aware of uh, where you can see horses on you know, absolutely – guaranteeable basis where you can go and make sure that there are going to be horses there when you go. We, we know Absolutely. places where they usually are. But there's no place where the public can go and reliably see them. And we, we'd like to create that because people want to see them. They love mm-hmm. them. You know that's uh, that's one of the that's one of the draws of, of places like Nevada and Wyoming and Montana and you know places out west. That really is one of the you don't want to say tourist attraction exactly, but that that is one of the lures to to go out there is to see, you know, creatures living in their in their true natural environment. And there are so few of those places left in this country these days. You know, it's it, what's wonderful is that we do have the elk in Jackson Hole and the buffalo out in South Dakota, and we do have some horse sanctuaries. There's one in South Dakota. There's one near Cody, Wyoming, where you can go. And see, and I, I just found out yesterday that there's an outfitter in Bishop, California, that will take you out uh, into wild horse country, and you'll follow the herd for a few days until you find it. And um, they, I was talking to um, a woman yesterday who'd actually gone on that ride, and said it was one of the most amazing. It's done by a professor um, who takes you out and actually lets you interact with these wild horses and watches, allows you to observe them. And interact with them. Um, I want to say it's Rock Creek Outfitters out of Bishop, California, but okay. um, there's uh, uh, that may be. You know, I can be the fountain of misinformation. <laughs> Some of these things I get, <laughs> I get talking, and I, you know, I, I get my. I, I think you know, I actually think I may be senile, but I'm not admitting it yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'm going to put. Um... Uh, the Let Them Run website address and your website address on all of my websites. And so if people listening do want some more information, they can contact Let Them Run, and, and I'm sure that they can get all kinds of links through that website. Am I it's correct? It's fabulous, and I, I have to recommend, um, if you really want to know what's going on with horse wars here in Nevada, and I have to tell you, if it hadn't been for Willie Nelson and Snoop Dogg, who came to the horse's rescue about uh, six months ago, 
our Department of Agriculture uh, suddenly announced that they were going to take all the horses to sale. So I wow. called I called uh, Connie Nelson and I said, Connie, can you get in touch with Willie? And I, we really need help. These horses are going to go the largest contiguous herd in the country and one of the only genetically viable ones. It's going to go to sale. And there and nobody's going to buy horses now. The hay is too expensive, especially untrained horses of four to ten years old. There's no way. Absolutely. And Willie, uh, I called Willie, and he was in the studio and headed to Amsterdam in the morning. And he said, "Well, just send me the PSA, and I'll have Eddie Kilgore read it on Willie's place, and we'll get, um, you know, we'll, you know, we'll call the governor and we'll." see what we can do and I said oh Willie I said I'm so grateful and I said and we really need one in your own voice can you can you please do one in your own voice and he said Lacey I don't know how to do that I'm going to Amsterdam in the morning I said Willie please so Willie got to Amsterdam and he was with Snoop Dogg and Snoop Dogg did it with him so Willie and Snoop Dogg got together and they did this public service (laughs) announcement and the governor's phone was like blocked for weeks (laughs) they even got a call from the the uh the expedition to Antarctica some woman on that expedition called and just, I guess, raised hell with the, with the governor, and it just stopped it in its tracks. But they're back at it again. They're saying now that they're going to sell the whole herd again. Wow. And um, so we're, what we're trying to do is offer them an option that, you know, we understand they're under pressure. We understand the state is in terrible, terrible financial shape. It's just in debt to a place where it's unbelievable. <clears throat> and we think that if with help from the private sector and giving – you know, we feel that since every horse costs the taxpayer a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a year in a facility, why shouldn't someone get um, a, a tax uh, credit for allowing them to be where they're not costing you that much? Absolutely. This also has the advantage of putting horse, wild horses where they're wanted, and not where they're not wanted. Sure. So that's my work with the horses in a nut. Shell from the nut from the head nut herself. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I, I certainly hope that you'll keep me posted on on the uh, the progress of this legislation and how it all works out. Because thanks, Brian. I, we're we're real excited about it. We do have, I, you know, the, having the support of the cattlemen and the farm bureau is, you know, we're trying to reach across you know, these perceived um, situations where where the cattlemen are perceived to be. The the evil cattlemen. It's just not the truth. That isn't yeah. the truth. And and actually, a lot of the cattlemen really like the wild horses. I was talking to one man who ran for office here out in Elko, Demar Dahl. His wife and he rescue thoroughbreds from the racetracks. They love horses. And Demar lost a farm. He lost a ranch to the wild horse destruction because what happens is wild horses get on your ranch. You call the Bureau of Land Management to get them removed before they eat all the grass that you've been managing for your cattle, mm-hmm. and it takes the BLM three months to get to you to deal with the horses with a proper crew. Wow. So by the time they get there, the damage is already done. The water <laughs> holes are already stomped in. You've already lost the grass that your cattle need, and you can lose your ranch, and DMAR did, but he is still a horse advocate. That's how a lot of the cattlemen feel. It's not the horses. It's the mismanagement of the horses. That's really great to hear that, you know, of course, it's, you know, there are all kinds of myths like that. But and, you know, the cattlemen in many ways have have kind of helped to foster those myths. But it's really great to hear that, you know, it's that everybody can be on the same side. Well, I I never thought it could happen because, you know, cattlemen were so vehement. When exactly. I first came to Nevada about wild horses. But then I began to to uh, I always try to hear both sides of a story before. The one thing I've learned by being the leader of a 
um, of an advocacy group. And in my life, you know, being, you know, having a band, dealing with management problems with that, I, I really always like to hear both sides before I make some kind of a decision or offer some sort of uh, some sort of a, a way to manage things. If you don't hear both sides of the story, you really don't have the whole picture. <laughs> you know, that's it's a, but you know, it's so easy to hear one side of a story and jump to the conclusion that yep. the other person is completely wrong. And the, yep. and I don't know how many years it took me to, and I still make the mistake sometimes <laughs> of being sympathetic to the first per, first person that they, I hear complaining <laughs> about something. Oh, he left you because because uh he left you with no money and and three children to raise. Then you hear the husband's like, "Well, she yeah. ran my credit cards up to 500 billion dollars." <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, yeah, oh, I see there is another side to things. <laughs> Well, well, Brendan, we are not talking about music, are we? We're certainly not, but let's get there. You know, but, uh, <laughs> I, but I, I, as I said, I want you to keep me posted on the progress of this because I, I would love to have you back on the show sometime to to talk about how things are progressing. And thanks, and, Brendan. Uh, I, and I sure appreciate it. And things can sure get screwed up. In the you know, you think the one thing I've learned about the horse business and advocacy of any kind is it's one step forward, three steps back. You bet. It's like uh, you, and you just have to keep going. I mean, it really requires <laughs> endurance, and sometimes you just feel like you're banging your head against the wall, and you just have to take those three steps back and go, okay, <laughs> need to look for another avenue. And that's how we've come to this. That's how we finally came to this um, this notion that if ranchers could be rewarded with a tax exemption for wild horses on their land, that yeah, and why shouldn't they be? Absolutely. You know, why, there's really no reason, and and the cattlemen see it the same way. Why shouldn't we be rewarded mm-hmm. if we want to do this? And there's well, really it seems no it, it seems like a win-win for everybody. It seems like it, and if the language, you know, bills can get weird exactly. by the by the language in them. If we can ride herd on this bill and make sure that the language is makes sense to everybody, then I think we'll get it done. And you know, that's probably true of anything you're trying to get done in the world. It's it's fantastic, and you know just for, just from our short exchanges that we've had over the past couple of weeks, I can I can see that you're nothing if not tenacious. So I think you have the I think you have the moxie. Now, what would give the, you that? What <laughs> would give you that? You know, sometimes I think that's all I have. My career has been so up and down. My career has been smashed to the smashed into smithereens to at so many times, and I just sort of keep going. And people say, "Oh, you're still alive. We didn't know you were still alive." Oh. Great, that's good to hear. I'm glad. To... <laughs> we thought you died. No, I didn't die. I'm just not with a big record company promoting my. You know, it's it is really weird to become an independent, which I'm now an independent artist. Mm-hmm. I make my own records in my own, in my own way, in my own time. But you just don't have that huge machine behind you telling people where you are and what you're doing. Exactly. So you don't have the monies for those things. Now some people do. I, you know, some people, and those are the people I need to. If there's anybody out there that really understands cross marketing on the internet for independent CDs, my independent CD, The Last Wild Place, went number one on the internet. Which is terrific. Do you like it? It was a great CD. Great. I. It was. It turned out exactly the way I wanted it. You know, I, I was so happy with this CD. I thought I finally get to make a CD that says what I want to say to people. And at that time, those songs were exactly what I wanted to say to people. How fun! Yeah, I got I got uh, one of the XM satellite radios a couple of years ago, and um, they were playing 
I can't remember the station. I think it was it was one of the country stations. One of one Probably of the kind of them. the the outlaw country stations on oh. on one of those channels was playing uh, a song of yours from that CD called "Listen to the Wind." Oh. And I was just blown away by it, and I thought I have to get this, so I found it on the internet and ordered it. And uh, it's Thank such you, a great man. CD. Thank you it's so, so great. much. I I really. I just got to finally say exactly what I wanted to say. Now, I was a little self-indulgent on it, um, and but it didn't seem to matter. It went number one on the uh, world country chart with the number one single slip away, and a year and a half later it went number one on the American Western uh, music chart with uh, the same single, Slip Away, and then Slip Away got put in um, Alison Eastwood's Sundance film. Uh, she had a Sundance that's... Um, her Sundance film was called Don't Tell. Okay. That's Clint Eastwood's daughter's, uh, and, I, and she's an up-and-coming film producer, and I understand mm-hmm. that was a pretty decent little film. Um, I never did get to see it, but I, they told me that the song, the whole song, is it's about the whole song, is what the way is in there. Wow. And I got to write a lot. I got to write a lot of the songs for this CD, and I got to say to people, I don't do music just to do music. I do music. I do music. To, because I know people, um, the earth is not an easy place to live. It isn't. It's not. I mean, some of us don't have easy lives. You some bet. of us, and I've, it's always been the theme for me with Hard Times, the album Hard Times, the album Survivor, where every song on the, I thought that was going to be the last CD I ever made. But every song on that CD was to help people having hard times. You know, when you're going through hard times, you need somebody to say, keep going. You need somebody to say, hey, I've been there, I know. You need you need to hear those things. I've needed them all my life. Absolutely. And so my music always has that underlying theme, even if I'm talking about, I need a fat old rich man to love me and adore me. You know, I mean, even, I do a lot, I have a lot, oh, lately I've been writing some of the strangest, you know, uh, I've, I've written a song called, While You Linger, Give Him the Finger. <laughs> <laughs> which is about, you know, you're lying there on your deathbed and everybody's waiting for you to die and get all your stuff. <laughs> They've driven you crazy all of your life. Give them the high sign. Give them high five while you linger. Give them the finger. Give them the finger. Give them the bird. It's your chance to have the last word while you linger. Give them the finger. I don't, I, for some reason, I've been writing, you know, uh, some very funny songs like that. But if you, a lot of the songs, are really my saying to my audience, I know, I understand, don't give up, never, never, never give up, don't lose hope, because, you know, I have been through, I, you know, I was widowed when I was very young, before that, my husband was paralyzed from the neck down, and I brought my new, my new baby and my totally crippled husband home from the hospital at the same time. It's you know I haven't had change you know I haven't had experiences like Christopher Reeves or somebody who's been burnt on three quarters of the, their body or something like that but I've had enough challenges that I know that people in those places sometimes a song will just pull you around uh-huh. sometimes save your li- literally save your life literally. literally save your life save your spirit give you the strength to take that one more step that you need to get across and people are suffering now all over the world. The economy is so bad. You know, I in fact my new C D is called is well it was going to be called I just found out that somebody named Cayenne something won a Grammy for um 
a CD called What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger. My new, the CD that I'm working on and have been working on for the last couple of years is called What Don't Kill You Makes You Strong. Gotcha. And that's the whole theme <laughs> of the record is What Don't Kill You Makes You Strong. <laughs> and don't forget it. Don't forget that when you're at your weakest point and you're ready to give up and you're ready to throw in the towel and you've just had it and you can't understand why in the world these things are happening to you. I think we don't get strong spiritual muscles by never being challenged, and we don't come here just – a lot of us – I mean, I think some people – some people really have a handle on – you know, and I don't know, maybe it's the Abraham teachings. I don't know what people listen to, but it's – some people have a handle on having very easy lives. Things seem to come to them in a very uh-huh. easy way. I've never – I don't quite understand all that. You know what I mean? Things, uh-huh. But I also feel that I, I'm not sure I'd really want that because I want to understand what people are going through. And I want to under, I know from first experience what it feels like to, you know, to, to not have a penny in your hand and need to pay a mortgage payment. Exactly. What are you going to do? How are you going to survive? Where are you going to live? What's going to happen to your family? You know, I have had these challenges, and I'm very grateful that I've had them. I kind of wish they'd let up, you know, <laughs> at some point. And uh, but while I'm still having them, I'm certainly going to be talking about how to have the strength to to keep going. So there's there is that message, and then you know, of course, there's just songs for entertainment and songs about how I feel about things. Um, and I, uh, I've, I've not found that great link that I need for somebody who really understands cross-marketing on the Internet because I am the biggest techno-peasant on the face of the earth. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it just is not my thing to sit in front of a computer and type things. I told you I'm dyslexic, so when I type yes. I, it's I-H. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's horrible. I, I went to a typing class. I had typing class in high school, Brendan. the end of a year, I could type six words a minute with six errors. Wow. <laughs> and I was really trying. I mean, I wasn't just, it was just not my thing. So typing into a computer is like, oh, my God. I got you. I, you know, I wish somebody would get those voice things perfected. <laughs> because then I could probably come into the real world with the rest. But from now on, I, I really, I'm an alien. I'm not from this world. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I need an alien-friendly computer. <laughs> Well, as I told you before the show started, I know a couple of people, so I will, I will certainly um, try to dig up some names and and put you in touch with some people who can who can help you in that respect because your music deserves to be heard. I mean, you are one of the true great artists. I really appreciate you saying that, Brendan. You're a very appreciative person. I hear you talking <laughs> about the artists on your show, and you're always so appreciative of them. And and it's really wonderful to come on a show where you know that you are appreciated. It makes you feel so welcome and it, it it enables you to really open up and and talk about stuff that's important i, I think what to I, hear somebody talk about stuff that's not important you know you bet you bet you you know i um I, I i i've been a fan of yours for my entire life and i just i can i don't think i can remember my life without you in it even on the periphery and are and you so kidding it's, it, it's, I ask you, how old are you I am 32 years old. I was born in 76. So my gosh, you're younger than my child. <laughs> my child who turns oh, God help us, 38 tomorrow. <laughs> wow. He's no longer. And guess what he does for a living? Three guesses. 
it's it's got to be something related to music. No, he, is it not? Computer. He works for the biggest uh, gaming company in the world, Rockstar. He's in Edinburgh, Scotland. He programs computers. Wow. Okay. My husband, my ex-husband, Little Fang, used to sell <laughs> uh, software for computers. Hence, I had computer people around me all the time, and I would say, just um, email so and so and tell them this, or do this. You know, I now you know that my son is in Scotland and my my uh, little Fang is in hell. I hope. Um, <laughs> Bitter, and perhaps a tad bitter. <laughs> no, I really don't. God bless him. Bless him. Bless him. You know, bless him. <laughs> uh, but I don't have any computer people around. I do have Bob Retzer, but he lives 40 minutes away from me. Yeah. And uh, he is wonderful. He's on, if you ever want to reach me, you can reach me at bob at lacyjdalton.com. Mm-hmm. That's how, that's you how I reach You can't really you. reach me except by telephone. Yeah. Which is, I live on the phone. I'm never off the phone. Yeah, it was I, so I'm great. going to have one inserted, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I found Bob's name through your website, and that's how I originally reached out to you. And and boy, he emailed me back within half an hour. I mean, it was just super fast. He's, you know, the wonderful thing about Bob is that he's ADD, so everything happens instantly, <laughs> <laughs> which can be good at times and, and not so good. But he, no, he's he's wonderful and he's completely responsive and wonderful to deal with. And I just don't know what I would have done. After I got, you know, uh, my son has been in Edinburgh. He's been over in uh, the U.K. for about ten years. And my husband's been gone for about four. So I was, I just was left with, my husband was also my business manager. And um, he was actually the recording engineer on The Last Wild Place. Oh, wow, okay. co-writer on a lot of my songs. We were together for a long time. Uh, we were together about 22 years. We did a lot of songwriting together and... He was my road manager. He was sort of, you know, there's the band and the guy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, he was sort of the guy. And he kind of did everything. <laughs> and I guess at some point he that, he just went, I'm not having that much fun anymore doing everything. <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> so that happened That happened rather late in life. And that's one of the things that was interesting to the reality show people because they said, here you are, you know, your um, – I'm not going to tell you my age, but but my son's 38, so you can figure it out. Okay. Anyway, um, uh, it's like you here you are, kind of down the road, a good way. You know, uh-huh. there aren't that many shopping days left before Christmas, <laughs> and this happens to you. How do you deal with it? How do you deal with the challenges of being left with absolutely nothing and huge debt? How do you deal with it as a single woman? They, I think they think that's compelling for the reality show. So maybe absolutely. it will be. I hope Absolutely. so. If you, see, if you see my mug on TV soon, <laughs> you know, let me tell you something. I would I would watch that show every day. So, <laughs> well, we will have fun. I, you know, if we get the show, we will have fun. It may it may not last, but we will have a good time while we're doing it. I'm I'm actually looking forward. They're sending me a camera, and I'm going to start shooting things with the camera. And um, I had to clarify that because there are times when I really would just like to get up on the rooftop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just lose it. <laughs> I think if you talk to anybody who's had one of these, I don't know what's happening in the world, but now people are, I used to think, geez, these people have been together 30 years. Couldn't they figure it out before now that they wanted a divorce? I just mm-hmm. never understood. I still don't understand it. It's like, I just don't get it. 
you know, it's like suddenly mm-hmm. 30 years down the road, it's like, ah, oh, this is too much. It's and, like, and, and on the career side, I mean, we're talking about, you know, we're living in a day and age now where, forget the personal stuff for a minute, but just professionally, we're, we're living in a day and age where it's, al- it's almost possible for everybody to go back to the beginning in terms of, in terms of you know, setting up their career, own, as we were talking about on the phone before the show started, owning their own image, owning their own material, uh, recording their own material, releasing their own material. It's, it's almost like the Wild West all over again. You know, that's the wonderful thing about the Internet. I, you know, I'm a techno-peasant, but I love the idea of computers. I can't wait till they, we can implant them. <laughs> you know, there's a, you don't have to type. You know, you just say whatever it is you want to say, and it'll be in the on the protein chip at the base of your brain. I mean, imagine what kind of a leap forward that will be for the human race. I think it will be incredible to have access like that, and I don't expect that that's very far down the road. I think it sounds incredible now, but I bet there is a time when there will either be a device that is small enough to constantly have on your wrist or something. Or there actually would be a, a computer a computer chip that you mm-hmm. know somehow wouldn't drive you mad, and I'm sure that I don't want to be involved in the first experiments of that. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know, you're absolutely. I mean, if you look at all the advances now, I mean, they have these implants that allow deaf people to hear now, and and uh, you know, they just have all these amazing advances in technology. And and I think you are, I think you're onto something there. I think it's 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 it may be a little ways down the road yet, but I I think you're onto something. Well, I think it will be – it's already been a huge evolutionary step. I'm not sure that it's, it's entirely good for people to live on computers because, first of all, an email can be so easily misinterpreted. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You can really – Absolutely. It, and if there's any attitude in it at all, it's blown up about ten times. Do you know what I mean? You can, Absolutely. I've gotten emails from people that just sounded like, you know, go shoot yourself. But um, – and that can be easily misinterpreted. And I think that what happens with a lot of kids especially get on computers and they don't interact in real life. And they don't really know how to act and mm-hmm. interact in real mm-hmm. life. There's a sense of community on the computer, and yet it's a very – it's not a very – it's not always a warm and fuzzy. It's kind of a um, – there's there's something about human beings interacting in in real life, in real time, even by telephone, I think is a warmer way than sometimes happens with kids. And, I, and I'm seeing a lot with kids who they are so involved in the computer, they're not involved in any sports, they're not yeah. involved in real things in the real world. I think there's a danger that you can get lost in that parallel reality. I, I and, completely agree with you because especially nowadays, I mean, we have these – they're they're called they're called social communities, but they're all online. I mean, you're you're kind of friends with people from all over the world, but it, but you don't have any any real personal interaction with anybody. It's all it's all typed out. It's all written. And you may not even use your own name. You may be Caterpillar exactly. Green exactly. Eyes or something, exactly. you know, or uh, you know, or uh, uh, you know, Dog Man. So you're not even really yourself. And that's I think that can be wonderful. It's just it's just another tool, but it's such a powerful tool. Mm-hmm. You don't put a chainsaw in the hands of a three-year-old, <laughs> and so I think I think that we really need to. Um, there probably needs to be a new science of how to integrate the computer world, the, the whole uh, cyberspace world, with this world in a way that is 
harmonious and gets balanced, that's probably going to be a little bit difficult. That's yeah. probably not going to be a real easy, um, an easy transition for a lot of a lot of kids who grow up just interacting through the computer. They don't mm-hmm. really know how to. You know, we used to call them geeks. <laughs> you know, the geeks sometimes don't know how to react in the real world. Uh huh. How can we make it so that? I guess as the cyber world becomes more and more like the physical world, um, that may be easier. It may be a natural transition. It may not. There may not be as much uh, um, friction as I perceive that there may be. But I have a lot of trouble. I have, you know, I have a lot of trouble with uh, with. I, I've worked with some young people who simply cannot work in the real world or on a telephone. They cannot do it because. They can't get out of that cyberspace. Yeah, that's where they live, and and I think and they probably have trouble with me because I can't get into the <laughs> cyberspace where they live. At least not until I can talk into the computer and it can really type. <laughs> I'm waiting for that. <laughs> I'm the last. I'm the last techno. I really am an outlaw. <laughs> but in the in the best way possible, if if in I may say so myself. The best possible way. Yeah. <laughs> you need people. You need troglodytes like me to. <laughs> Remember where you come from. <laughs> but you know, you make a you make a good point about about emails being misinterpreted. I've, I've had a couple of past guests, and I won't name names, but but uh, a couple of past guests who who kind of sent me what I perceived to be terse emails, and they probably weren't. They probably were just in a hurry and you know answering my request and whatever. But but you know, I, after reading these emails, I was left thinking, oh, this might not be a very good show. And then I get on the air with them, and they're perfectly they're perfectly terrific guests. So. It's it's a good point you make about kind of uh, how you bring your own shading to whatever you read, whatever you receive on the on the in the, in an email or in a letter or whatever. Well, and sometimes the the intent is there to be obnoxious, and when it is, it's like ten times worse than if <laughs> they called you up and said, you know, I have a problem with this, or you know, can we talk about this? My whole thing with uh, with people is, can we talk about this? You know, can let's have let's have a cup of coffee and talk about this. Exactly. Let's sit down and talk about this. Of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, I, I guess it didn't work with Little Thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some people aren't just aren't predisposed to, to uh, you know, negotiation and human interaction. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so let's 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 talk about let's talk about you for a bit. You know, you had hit after hit after hit after hit for a time in the '80s, and you were nominated and for and won. Grammys and CMA awards and and all kinds of all kinds of great honors. Talk about that period of time for you. You you know you worked so hard to get to where you were, and you were finally reaping kind of the benefits of 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 what you had worked so hard for. Well, I had I was very fortunate because um, I was discovered by Billy Sherrill and Al Gallico, his partner, who was his publisher. Absolutely. And uh, Billy was the most wonderful person I ever worked with. He just loved my voice. He believed in me more than I believed in myself. You know, I was 36 years old when I got my first record deal, and people were appalled. There were articles in magazines, why is that a 36-year-old waitress is a great white hope of country music? I mean, they were just mortified that I was so ancient, that I was 36 years old, and this was horribly ancient. And and uh, there was a lot of resistance. Because I didn't look like the other women, I didn't have blonde hair and big boobs, and you know I was kind of plain looking. And um, 
people resisted that. But then, because of Billy, we overcame all of that resistance. You won. And Billy, I'll never forget him telling me, he used to say, you know, they're going to tell you a lot of things in this business. But don't you ever dare tell them. Don't you ever dare let them tell you you can't write. He says, I like your voice, and I signed you because it's different. But I really signed you because I like the way you write. Wow. Uh, that, from someone who had discovered Tammy Wynette and and George Jones and Tanya Tucker and um, Charlie Rich and David Allen Coe and Johnny Paycheck and all these people... Um, and and he was Ray Charles' producer almost to the end of his life. He had worked with the, the greatest artists, and he was very well respected. So to hear that from a man who, Billy never criticized me. He always, I guess he knew that I wasn't the most confident person that he'd ever worked with. It, success came, you know, late for me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have that thing of having been raised as a child in the business or having family in the business or being a star from the time I was 20. Exactly. Don't don't you it, think that helps you appreciate it more, though? I don't know, because I'm not sure I did it first. It was like I just couldn't believe it. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, well, this is probably more <laughs> fish farts, you know. <laughs> in the, the, at the, I mean, I just, you know, it was like there was a part of me that was it just, I just couldn't quite believe it was happening, you know. It was like... Um, but it, but he was wonderful because in the studio he was very gentle. If he wouldn't tell me how to sing anything, and he never made me record something I hated. We had a an agreement. I wouldn't make him produce something he hated if <laughs> he didn't make me so, sing something that I hated. And he was he had a very hard time. He said, "You know, you're the most difficult artist I have ever worked with <laughs> to find material for." Because he said, you won't do songs about divorce. And I said, I hate divorce. I never <laughs> want to sing about divorce. You know, I just, I don't want to sing about it. I don't even believe in it. You know, I don't want to sing about it. I think, you know, I think it's people who don't try hard enough. I mean, why? Well, of course, I was stupid. But um, at that time, I just didn't have any interest in singing those those kinds of lyrics. And I didn't want to also sing Lyrics where I'm a poor, broken-hearted woman that everybody's kicked around, and, and when you're ready, you can come back because I'll still be here. Wow. That was just never the mm. message I ever <laughs> wanted to give because it wasn't how I felt. And I thought that women needed stronger messages about how to deal with things. You know, don't you dare come back here, you know, drinking and, and having been with some other woman and, and expect me to be here. Because I'm not going to, I might understand once, but I'm not going to keep understanding because you're not going to change unless I insist on it or you leave and I find somebody that doesn't do that stuff. Exactly. That's that's a great point, too, because especially in the genre you were working in, because country, it seems to me that country was the one genre of music that has always welcomed women with open arms. You know, rock. Women came very late to rock. Women came very late to uh, other other genres of music. And it seems to me that country was the one genre where you were always welcome. Always. We were welcome, but we were only welcome as stand by your man women. Which I am also a stand by your man woman, but I am not a stand by your man if he continues to be a jerk. Yeah. You know that's a. You know there were so many songs that I just could not sing because I just would not sing those lyrics. 
those victim lyrics. I just wouldn't do it. So it made it difficult for... Um, but Billy loved the challenge. That's why he found songs for me. Like, Well, that's why he, we wrote a lot of songs together. We wrote uh-huh. Taking It Easy, which was a big hit with Mark Sherrill uh-huh. and Billy. It was Mark's idea, and Billy and I helped him finish it. And it went, um, was that one a million airplay song? My song, Crazy Blue Eyes, I wrote with um, my oldest friend. We'd been friends since, we still are friends. We've been friends since we were seven years old. And rewrote the song Crazy Blue Eyes together and was my first hit. And Billy loved that song because it was different. Mm-hmm. It was a woman saying, not saying, um, well, saying something different. You know, why do I do this to myself? <laughs> why do I fall for these guys that just absolutely, um, have, it, they are unable to sustain a relationship? Well, maybe because I'm unable to sustain, I don't want to have a, a <laughs> relationship that sustains right now and, <laughs> you know maybe i don't want to be you know tied down and branded and barefoot in the kitchen having babies mm-hmm. you know because that never was that was never my thing i really i'm so glad that i i had my son um but i never i didn't want to get married and have babies that's always seemed like a trap that always seemed like that happens and then you have these children, and you're working, mm-hmm. and and you know you've never actually experienced you know the gypsy part of me that wanted to go on the road and yeah. and be a musician and do the mm-hmm. stuff I do. So that you know that was what that song was about. Mama, I always love losers. Mama, I never will change. <laughs> These young desperados who can't be tied down have driven me almost insane. <laughs> you know, it was, you know, why do I fall for those crazy blue eyes, those mavericks who won't settle mm-hmm. down? But I never could stand the touch of a man who'd brand me to keep me around. And that's really how I, and that's why they called me an outlaw, because I wasn't saying, <laughs> hey, I want to settle down and have your baby and be married and be... You know, however, uh-huh. when I did, I do keep my word. So when I did get married, I really believed it. I really never cheated, and I really <clears> kept <throat> those vows uh-huh. because I believe that our word is all we have in this world. Uh-huh. So if I give you my word, I'm going to keep it or die trying or come to you saying I'm unable because this is happening. Yeah. You know, I think there's not enough of that in the world. I think that it's become okay for guys like Ken Lay to squander people's pensions and mm-hmm. you know I mean I just I cannot believe the behavior of these CEOs of these huge companies who are so flagrantly irresponsible and mm-hmm. have hurt people who have worked their whole lives and are depending on a pension you and they don't get it or they work their whole lives and then to, which happened to my mother and father-in-law they were uh, executives at a company, and they wanted them to retire. So they they made their staffs. Uh, they cut the people on their staffs until they were doing the work of three people late in life, late in their 50s and early 60s, going to work at 4 o'clock in the morning and doing all of this work until the pressure became so great that it became easier to take early retirement so the company didn't have to pay them. I have watched our company um, deteriorate in integrity to the point where I am so sick to my stomach about some of the things that happened that 
I don't know how to deal with it. It's like, whatever happened with a true work ethic in people? Why have we, how have we gotten to the point where uh, people is just about me, me, me making so much money that I can have a Hummer? Who the hell needs a Hummer? <laughs> you know, my friend, my friend, uh, uh, Thomas Geiler, who wrote 16th Avenue, which was probably the biggest hit I ever had, and is one of the top 100 country songs ever. You bet. Um, he wrote a song, and it goes, um, who needs a Hummer? What kind of arrogant guy? We know you're rich, you little son of a bitch. Who needs a Hummer and why? <laughs> and I just love that song. I mean, I'm not, you know, people... It's just a little bit overkill to drive down to a liquor store. You know? I mean, if you're in a rock, it's one thing. Yeah. Or if you have a cattle ranch, something like that. But, you know, people driving down, they're driving around, they're not even comfortable. It's like riding around a bathtub. You know, I don't know what the thing is, but... <laughs> You know, I guess it's conspicuous consumption. I have a problem with it. I think it's silly. Uh, you know, if you power doesn't come from that stuff. Perceived power does. Exactly. But real personal power comes from integrity, and integrity comes from keeping your word and not having the. I'll never forget some of the wealthiest men I have ever known. Well, I remember meeting George Hurst. When I met him, he lived in a trailer on his big, giant, huge ranch down in Ventura. Didn't even have a telephone there. Now, of course, they had corporate offices and stuff yeah. like that. But how he lived with all that money, he didn't need to have – he didn't need conspicuous consumption because mm -hmm. he already was what he was. Mm -hmm. He dressed in regular cowboy clothes, looked really nice, and lived to, cut to, to ride cutting horses. Wow. And, you know, some of the wealthiest people that you meet are, um, well, I'll never forget meeting Sherwood Cryer, who owned half of, uh, oh, what's it, Pasadena, Texas. I owned all the land under it and owned okay. Gilly's Club. Everybody thinks that Gilly owned Gilly's Club, but it was really a guy <laughs> named Sherwood Cryer. And I'll never forget the first time I met Sherwood, he was sweeping the floor. He had a pair of really droopy old uh uh, a Levi over, you know, bib overalls on, uh -huh. and a shirt, and you know, I talked to him for a while. I thought he was the janitor. You know, he was. <laughs> and, I mean, I didn't care who he was. But anyway, we we got along really great. Then he walked away, and I noticed in his back pocket was a six gun, hanging out of the back pocket of his jeans. I'm going, wow, this is really weird. They, you know, at Gillies they had the janitors have six guns. I said, that's not the janitor. That sure would cry or heal the place. <laughs> And I'll never forget when you used to settle up with Sherwood after playing Gilly's Club. Uh -huh. You'd walk back into the office. Sherwood be Sherwood had ice blue eyes. He didn't drink, didn't smoke. You know, he was just a absolutely. He reminded me of an old preacher from Massachusetts. Anyway, he'd sit behind that desk, and the first thing he'd do would be pull out the gun and lay it in front of him. <laughs> this huge six wow. gun, this revolver, lay it on the table, and then he'd brag brag. <laughs> drag out this bag of money and pay you in cash <laughs> and with the gun sitting there. <laughs> and I mean, it was just like, geez, Sherwood, this is just like the old <laughs> West here now. <laughs> you know? but, I mean, some of the things that, you know, but, you know, and just richer than, you know, Croesus, mm -hmm. more money than God. Mm -hmm. And uh, there he was. In, so I, I'm not into conspicuous consumption. I just, you know, I don't care if you have, I don't care what you have. It's not about what you have; it's about what you are. Exactly. Do you think that? Do you think that's part of the reason why you settled in Nevada, where you did? 
because it, no, it I seems to me that the bottom because I didn't have endless <laughs> money and I couldn't I couldn't afford to move back to California during the housing boom. <laughs> so I got as close as I could where I could still afford a house. I got you. <laughs> but you know, I mean, in, in some ways, it seems to me that, that that philosophy that you just mentioned is is very much alive in the area where you live. And and it's really true. It's really true. A lot of the uh, you know, when you meet a lot of the people who really run this state, um, they're pretty down home because they they have lived on the land. They are a lot of them are ranchers who are close to the land, and I think that was true of George Hurst. You know, he ran cattle. He really does know how to cowboy. Mm-hmm. And I think when you live close to the earth like that, there's probably less of a need to impress people. Mm-hmm. Um, although. I do understand it in the world. I understand that people are very easily impressed by um, things like Hummers and fancy houses and stuff like that. And if you have that stuff, sometimes it makes it easier to do whatever it is you're trying to do. But there's so much emphasis put on it, I think that, you know, I think that's what's happening with the housing crisis. I mean, a lot of us are in trouble with uh, being in houses that are really more than we can afford because Mm -hmm. we are trapped in that thing of having, you know, none of us need much. Mm-hmm. And you're just chasing status. Yep, yep. And, you know, there's a whole other way of looking at it, too. I mean, there is plenty in this world. There is abundance. There's no, it's not a, a sin to have beautiful things or want beautiful things either, you know, Absolutely. on the other hand. On the other hand, but sometimes I just think that when there's too much emphasis on getting stuff. And when your whole philosophy is he who dies with the most toys wins, <laughs> I think you're missing the point. <laughs> you know, it, it's it, it, it's all about motivation, I think. It's all about it's all about why do you want what you want. Yes, I think you're right. And 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 I think it's okay to want what you want. Absolutely. If you want Absolutely. a Hummer, I think it's perfectly okay for you to have a Hummer. No question about it. I don't know if I'm going to be all that impressed by it. If you're trying to impress me, you know, I mean, I don't know if that's something that would knock me out. I'd just say, gee, that guy's sure paying a lot for his gas. You know, and using up a lot of, of uh, resources that maybe he doesn't need to use. And, and uh, maybe he does. Maybe he needs to get across a... a Roaring River is ranch or something. I mean, you can't judge anybody else. But a lot of times I find that um, I'm really impressed by somebody who is very wealthy, who's really, you know, like T. Boone Pickens t- taking on 33,000 wild Absolutely. and trying to talk us into alternative energies and so on and so forth. I mean, there mm-hmm. are very some very, very conscious people now in the world, and I do think that we need to look uh, toward downsizing a lot of stuff we do. You know, mm-hmm. we, a lot of us, we just get so caught up in having and getting that pretty soon we're overwhelmed. I know in my house, I'm overwhelmed with stuff. The more I give away, the more comes. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I can have a yard sale last for three months, and I still have <laughs> my house would still have too much stuff in it. It drives me crazy. It's bad feng shui. I like that empty thing. Well, it's not at my house, though. You know, I talk a good game, but if you came here, you'd see they're just things, and people bring me things all the time. I'm always getting things from people. I'm going, please don't give me anything else. I don't want any more stuff. If I died today, my kids would would really want me. 
they would really curse. They would probably be the, be the first humans <laughs> in history to haunt a ghost because <laughs> they would have such a mess to clean up. I mean, they would not know where to begin. A three-week yard sale would probably be a good place. <laughs> so tell me this. If, if if this isn't a fair question, by all means, let me know and we'll move on. But but I really want to ask you this. i have to kill you. <laughs> I, I really want to ask you if you were amazed back in the day at the criticism that you faced for incorporating different genres and different styles into your music. You know, the the knock on you, if I have my facts right, and if I don't, please correct me, but uh, the knock on you was that you were in some ways too radical, that you didn't want to stay in your little country box. Um, were, were you amazed at, at any of the at any of the criticism and any of the uh, kind of comments that you faced from people in your genre of music? No, but what amazes me now, I was not amazed because I knew that I was different. I've always known I've been different. And I finally, at some part, some age, went, that's the good thing. That's what's good about you. You're not the same. Absolutely. The fact that you have all these other experiences is, that's the only thing that's worth anything about me. You know, is that I'm not the same. There's a lot of people that can be the same, but you know, a lot, and and a lot of people are, and a lot of people like that, and it causes success in a lot mm -hmm. of people's lives. Mm -hmm. But it's not what I am, and I was always taught to be myself, mm -hmm. whatever that was. So I don't try to. I don't have a lot of secrets. I don't h try to hide a lot of stuff. If you'll find when I write a song, a lot of times there's a song on The Last Wild Place that is, is a very, very intimate song. It's called Standing Knee Deep in the River and Dying of Thirst. Mm -hmm. And it is a very, very self-revealing lyric. And a lot of my songs are. I am not trying to hide anything from anyone um, about who I am or what I do. Absolutely. But what is amazing to me now is that now I am considered a very traditional country artist. Isn't that hysterical? It's well I just I mean I am considered I'm right there, you know, they'll say, you know, the the real traditionalist country like Lacey J. Dalton or <laughs> you know, and and I think that's really a trip. Because this, you know, there were always the influences of rock and blues and absolutely. and stuff always in my music. Absolutely. But now I'm considered you know, one of the traditionalists. Which is, because so that's amazing to me. What being called different—that was not exactly. amazing to me because I knew that. You know, it's like, yes, I know I'm weird. <laughs> You're either going to like it or not. I can't please all of you, and that's just where it is. But, but you know, um, with, with with people like, and, and not to knock these people at all, but people like Garth Brooks and Faith Hill and Shania Twain, with with those kind of people who came to the who came to the helm in the '90s, the entire genre moved in a decidedly more glamorous, more pop direction anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, not to knock them at all, what they did was perfectly fine. But, but your talent was to me, to my ear. You took all of all of the genres and all of your influences—rock, blues, folk—and you made them. You processed them through your voice and through your style, and you made all of those influences influences decidedly country. Did you think so? I did think so, absolutely. Well, there was a time, you know, I was really trying to fit in. I was thirty-six years old. I had a child to raise. I really tried to fit in to country music. What mm -hmm. happened to me was that even though I could do that music and I understand it because I grew up with it, there was also this whole other part of me. 
and it wasn't getting ex- it wasn't getting any expression and it was getting some frust- it was getting frustrated i was feeling frustrated by the inability to communicate fully the things that i thought were worth communicating to other people and maybe there weren't i mean maybe, you know that i'm just coming from my universe where i'm saying this is the gift that i have Exactly. I want to give it as fully as I can give it. Whether it's worth anything to you or not, it's what I give it's what I give to you. If it can heal your heart, if it can help you through your life, if I can give you anything that keeps you going when it's miserable, that's what I'm here to do. Exactly. That's my mission. And you know, not everybody feels that way. I didn't know that. But I do know that when you ask a kindergarten class because I've taught a few, if you ask little kids, "What do you want to do?" When you grow up, what do you want to do? I'll bet you you get at least half, if not three quarters of them, saying, "I want to help people. I want to help people." It's amazing to see these little children say, "I want mm-hmm. to help people." So it's probably you know I don't think it's unique to want to help people, but it's not always people don't always want to do that with their music. You know, people just want to play their music because it feels good and it's exactly. a good thing to do and it makes people feel good and, you know, they can make money at it. And and some people do it because they want recognition and want to be a star and want to have, um, a, you know, and, I mean, people have all kinds of reasons for doing what they do. And uh, Billy always told me, Billy Sherrill, my first producer, he said, it's going to be harder for you. He said, because you have a mission. He said, I'm mm-hmm. not telling you not to have one. But he said it's always harder. So know that. So I know that. There wasn't much I could do about it because I tried, I really did try for a while to do uh, to do some music that was just commercial. And, and there was one point about three years into my career, and I had been doing a lot of songs that really didn't mean that much to me. Mm-hmm. And I had been on the road over 300 days a year for my first three years. Willie Nelson and I were CBS's most active artists for those three years. I was just on the road all the time, almost all year long. And I wasn't seeing my child, and I didn't have a life. I was just performing and performing and performing, just out on the road, constantly working, and really not making much money because I had a huge band. And um, I really, at the end of the third year, I, I really had lost it. I really wasn't having fun, I was really tired, and the music wasn't meaning anything to me. I wasn't saying to people what I really wanted to say and what I thought they needed to hear from Mm -hmm. me. I was just doing what other people did, just making songs and singing them. And I thought, I'm not doing this anymore. This isn't why I do music. This isn't working for me. I'm not having fun. I'm only just doing it to make a living, and it's gross. I mean, I'm just not... It, this isn't it. And um, I went to see Arlo Guthrie, and it was his birthday. And we were up in Massachusetts somewhere, you know, somewhere up in the northeast near the, the coast. We were playing in this big old Barney building, like a big old um, uh, yacht, a building that had once housed a shipbuilding thing or something. It was a really neat, I don't even remember what it was, but it was near the beach. And I guess I opened for Arlo. I don't remember my show, but I remember. I remember at the time I was just completely emotionally bankrupt. I just, what it just, the music was meaning nothing to me. I was singing songs that 
uh, you know, that had been hits, but, you know, and I... I wasn't getting enough of what I really wanted to say out to the people. And mm-hmm. at the end of his show, which was very, very moving, he said, you know, it's my birthday, and I want to sing a song that means a lot to me. And he said, I want to tell you the story of this song. He said, there was a man who ran a slaving ship. He he was a slaver, and it was a horrible thing. He was He had done many, many abuses against the people that he was transporting from one continent to the other and you know he was uh, he was really a, an abusive man and he fell in love with a woman from up around here somewhere because like I said we were up in around Massachusetts somewhere mm-hmm. New England and he fell so in love with her and she was a Christian woman and he had an experience that totally he totally was convicted by the Holy Spirit and he realized that he had been living, that he had been, you know, creating this hell on earth for these slaves that he was transporting. And he was so moved by it that he wrote this song and he sang Amazing Grace. I sat there listening to Arlo and the tears were pouring out of my eyes. And I realized that this was what music was about. Absolutely. It wasn't about singing these commercial ditties that everybody wants you to <laughs> sing. And I wasn't, and that didn't turn me on. I, it, I, it was leaving me so cold, and I decided right then I was going to drop every song from the show that I didn't like, that I didn't feel <laughs> and didn't believe in, and that was light and stupid. And I started doing the songs that really meant something to me and meant something to people and would and could help people in their lives or at least you know entertain them in a way that I that I was having fun too and it that's when you know Arlo really changed my life with that song wow so then I began to realize that you know I it wasn't I wasn't doing this because I wanted to be a big star cuz I that was you know that was never really um a part of why I did music until I realized if you weren't, you probably couldn't afford to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that you know that's you know I just I never had that whole thing of wanting to be you know I later on it developed in me because I realized geez you know if you want to exist and and be able to have a decent band and decent equipment and play on mm-hmm. decent stages and eat while you're doing it <laughs> you have to do some of this stuff but I was never very good at it because it it really was not what my motivation was so. You know, all of that aside, you know, I it, and things changed in me as I grew and changed. You know, I'm not the same person that I was then, but that certainly it is still the reason that I do music is really to reach out and say, hang in there. Mm-hmm. You can do it. Never the way somebody did for you. The way people have done for me and books have done for me and tapes have done for me. Chris Christopherson's songs have changed my life twice. Twice, and I mean completely changed my life completely. Well, the first time I heard "Lord, what have I ever done?" <laughs> to, I mean, I just fell apart. I just fell apart. I went. I have been so ungrateful because that is a song about gratitude. Um, 
And I always wish that Garth Brooks would do that. Garth, I've tried to tell people, I think that if Garth Brooks did that song, mm-hmm. it would just absolutely blow everybody's mind. It would blow everybody. It would do so much for this world to have someone of that stature do that song. Mm-hmm. But, of course, Chris did it better than anybody. That <laughs> one, and then later on, I had a situation after um, a new guy came in and surreptitiously took over the record company uh, from Billy Sherrill. He had been sent down by CBS New York, who had become jealous of the publishing monies that Al Gallico and Billy Sherrill were um, making from their writer-artists. And he sent this guy down to try to get all us newer artists to sign with other producers and give Mm -hmm. our publishing to CBS. But... Billy was never supposed to know about this. This was just supposed to happen surreptitiously, and no one was supposed to know. And so um, what happened was um, I kind of got caught in the middle of it and it sort of exposed the new guy I, inadvertently. I, I couldn't understand why a record we'd had that we all, the radio had been calling and calling and calling on this record. We put it out and it didn't go anywhere and found out that the independent promotion people who were supposed to have been on the record had never been put on the record. Wow. They'd never even gotten to work it. The record just went south and sort of thereby uncovered the whole thing that was happening, and Billy went to CBS and tried to get out of his contract and um, had to stay for one more year and and then said he was going to leave, which he did. And I said, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm just going to wait till they come back to me and offer more, me more money than they ever have for anybody to produce <laughs> records, and then I'll produce more records. <laughs> and so, meanwhile, uh, the other guy takes over the record company and hates my guts because I've inadvertently you know, shown his butt to the world, mm. and he was determined to destroy me. And he did a lot of awful. It, it, it was really awful. I was trapped there. You know, he said, I'm not going to let you go because I don't want to compete with you, and I'm not going um, to let you off this label, and uh, you're just stuck here. And I said, wow. well, I may be stuck here, but I don't have to make records for you. <laughs> I can just sit here and let my contract run out, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. And someday they're going to discover that you know, you're an idiot, and you don't know how to run a record company, you don't know a minor key from a major key, and you'll be selling shoes in Cincinnati, and I'll still be making music. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So he threw me out of his office, and that was, you know, <laughs> you know, one of the reasons why you don't hear about Lacey J. Dalton after that first big burst, because <laughs> I was stuck there for four years, couldn't get, you know, couldn't get arrested, and I, meanwhile, Absolutely. I have a child to raise. Absolutely. I'm a single mother. I'm struggling horribly. I am full of hatred for this guy. I just hated him, and I was really full of bitterness and full of um, unforgiveness, and I just couldn't believe that, you know, because I didn't mean to expose the guy. It just happened, you know. And I began to pray about it. And because I knew that, you know, being unforgiving, and you have to understand, I'm not a religious person at all. I am not a religious person. But um, I do believe that I love God with all my mind and heart and spirit. I do believe in spirit. And um, I knew that I was out of balance because I was full of this unforgiveness and hatred. Mm -hmm. And so I began to pray about it. And I was on tour with Johnny Cash and Chris Christopherson and um, uh, Hoyt Axton and a whole bunch of other people. We were on tour in Europe. 
And in between our big concerts, some of the other guys did little concerts. So Chris was playing in a little club in Germany one night, and I walked in. And here, this man had already changed my life once. Mm -hmm. And so Chris Christopherson really is my favorite songwriter because his songs have absolutely changed my life on two occasions in in a spiritual way. So I walked in, and I hear him singing a song, and it goes, the chorus of it goes, when they deal you down and dirty in a way you don't deserve, you will feel better if you take it like a man or a woman, because if you let them drive you crazy, girl, they'll shut your business down. <laughs> Shake it off and get your licks in when you can, because the heart is all that matters in the end. Yes. The heart is all that matters in the end. Yes. You covered that song. Uh, well, I did, but it wasn't until, and, and, and it, that totally changed my life. It made me, I thought that Spirit was speaking to me directly, saying, you need to get your head out of your butt. Mm-hmm. You need to forgive this man for whatever reasons. He has to feel powerful. He has to feel in control. And I was I actually prayed about it, and I was actually shown some things about this person. You know, as a young person, he had had polio. I'm sure he didn't feel powerful. I'm sure it was really important for him to be in control because, you know, he had he really was rather crippled by it, and I was able to see that. And because I was able to see that, I understood exactly why he was acting the way he was, which was very, very vindictive. And I began to be able I began to be able to forgive him. And then somebody else told me, you know, the people that you're trying to forgive don't deserve forgiveness necessarily. You need to forgive for you. <laughs> and if you can't forgive for yourself, you need to ask God's understanding, God's forgiveness to flow through you to them if you can't if you just can't get there you have to ask spirit for that gift so i did and i began to understand and forgive because to to forgive somebody it's good to understand where they're coming from because sometimes if you can understand that it makes it a lot easier to forgive them you know the the person that abused you as a child if you can look back and see that his grandfather was abusing him Mm -hmm. or his grandmother was abusing him as a child and it's a thing that goes back you know, generations, you're going to have some understanding about where that sickness might have started and mm-hmm. some compassion. You not, may not, you know, think it's a great thing. I didn't want to hang out with this guy after I forgave him, but I did want to forgive him. Absolutely. So that is, you know, that's what Chris Christopherson's song did for me. It showed me not only that I needed to forgive, why I needed to forgive, because I couldn't progress with my life any farther any further, until I had really looked at that and and really pulled it apart and seen exactly what it took to get beyond that negative place. So that is, that is what Chris Christopherson's song, The Heart, did for me. So when I finally was able to be bought off that record label and bought away from my first manager... And this was thousands and thousands. I think it was to be sixty-seven thousand just to get the manager down the road. Wow! And uh, and and more to I don't know what it cost to get me from from the record company. Jimmy Bowen did it for me. Okay. Uh, he was uh, Garth Brooks, the guy that you know was really responsible for. Um, he was the president of Garth's record company for first Absolutely. record company, and he had the money to do that, so he bought me off of that label. But it had been a long, long time. <laughs> And the first record that we put out 
was my recording of the heart. And it wasn't a big hit. I think it only, I don't even know what it did on the charts. But I got to sing it on the Today Show. And I got to spread that word out over the world in that way. And that, it was on an album called Survivor. Mm-hmm. And that was Which is probably my I, favorite album of yours. Well, it's one of my favorites. Because every single song on it, I thought it was going to be the only album I ever got to make again. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to put on this what I really want to have on it. Wow. So every song, almost every song, there were a couple that were, you know, Bowen insisted on my doing, and they were good enough. One of them I wrote, and I just didn't think was good enough. I still don't. But he wanted it on there. But um, the songs, uh, the song The Heart was a hit for us and started that uh, CD off on a very good foot. Absolutely. And it absolutely did what I wanted to do. And I got to sing it on the Today Show, just me and the guitar. And I had hundreds of letters and calls from people How great. about it. So Chris's song got out that way. I hope somebody records it again someday because it's really a wonderful message. And if it helps anybody in this world as much as it helps me, mm-hmm. it helped me, um, it will have done... Any, you know, it'll have done what a, probably hundreds of thousands of other songs never do. You, know? you bet. So um, anyway, that's you know that's pretty much all she wrote about why I do it and what motivates me to do it and and the music that I do and uh, I am so very happy to be an independent artist. I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm really um, at this point uh, not making anywhere near the money that I used to make. Um, and that's okay. Uh, you know, that's that's what you take on when you become an independent. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some people have been very successful at it. I think they're just better at uh, getting the marketing out on the computer. And I'm still looking for that piece. I'm still looking for the person that really knows how to do that but loves what I do. Exactly. It's one thing to find those people. It's another thing to find those people who love what you do and know what you're doing and want to support that. And so who mesh I'm, well with your personal philosophy. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's what I'm looking for right now. Wow. Talk about talk about some of your some of your favorite songs that you've done. Well, the heart is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did a song called "I'm a Survivor," and that was an interesting story because that was uh, the hot pick single and most added record, and it was it talked about. You know, yes, yeah, so we've had all these challenges. Yes, it's been hard, but I'm a survivor. I'm going to keep in there. I'm going to keep on pushing, and I was. You know, it was during the 80s when we were having that other recession mm-hmm. period, and I knew people were going to be losing their jobs, and they really needed to have that message. And the record company at that time, uh, it was a hot pick single and most added record one week, and the next week they decided to make Garth Brooks' single the top debuting single ever, and they just dropped all the rest of us artists. They just oh. dropped our, all of us. So I was so disappointed because I really wanted that message to get out in the world. And I did a video on that song, I'm a Survivor, and it was not a very good video. It really wasn't that great, but it was kind of a hit. So the message got out into the world that I wanted to get out in spite of the fact that the record had just been dropped. Well, I was so angry about it. I was at uh, over at Sacramento at the State Fair, and I was playing – my show, and I thought, I'm not going to put Survivor in, because if I start thinking about what happened to that song, I'm going to get so pissed off that I'm not going to do a good show. Because it I just breaks my heart that this couldn't get out into the world to help people who I wanted to. So um, 
I'm I finished my show and I was walking back to the bus and somebody ran up to the fence. This woman ran up the fence and Lacey, Lacey, please, please talk to me. Please come over and talk to me. So a lot of times you'll you know, if and I had to be somewhere else, but I went over and talked to this woman and I'm so glad that I did. And I said, What can I do for you? And she said, Why didn't you do Survivor? Why didn't you do Survivor in your show? And I said, I told her what had happened, and I said, you know, I just, was, I'm just feeling kind of bitter about it, and, you know, because I really, I know people need to have it, hear it so much, and it's not getting out in the world. And she said, well, I just want to tell you something. She said, I was in a coma for about three or four months from a car accident. Wow. And my friend played that song for me every day, and I think it's the only reason I'm here. So don't you ever leave that song out of your <laughs> show again. Don't you ever leave that song out of your show again. Wow. So I guess that was Spirit's way of saying, Hey You bet. You know, you don't forget have, about you. <laughs> I'm doing this. I'm doing it my way. Yeah. You know. Uh you know, you're just a mouthpiece, so just mm-hmm. do you just do your job. Mhm. But it was uh and th- and those things those things have happened to me so many times when I've really been ready to give up because you know, it's very hard for me now because being an independent artist you just don't have that cash flow. Exactly. So, um, and when I make my records, it takes me forever. I've been working on one for three years now, and just paying for it a little bit at a time, and a little <laughs> bit at a time, a little bit because that's the only way I can do it. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the what don't kill you. And I just found out that somebody won a Grammy for a album of the same, almost the same <laughs> title, which is like, you know, the the songs were written three years ago, ready to go, and I didn't have the money to do it. So it's like, oh, good, that was great. And I also just have to keep thinking, you can't hurry, my God. Oh, no, you just got to wait. You got to trust and bide your time, no matter how long it takes. He's a God you can't hurry. He'll be there, don't you worry. No, he may not come when you want him, but he's right on time. Phoebe Snow taught me that song. Wow. Amazing. He may not come when you want him, but he's right on time. <laughs> you can't hurry, my God. You bet. You bet. And so, you know, and that maybe that's a lesson that I have to learn in this life, you know, surrender and, and just uh, let things happen. You know, maybe in a couple of years, nobody will remember that the other guy had an album. <laughs> I hope it doesn't take me that long to get it out. But anyway, that's, uh, that's kind of how it's been. It's uh, it's just and it keeps on being a challenge. You know, life keeps on being a challenge. I used to think that at some point you kind of got a break, <laughs> but I'll never forget my aunt. My my I had this fabulous uh, aunt, and she um, she was uh, eighty some years old, and she had cancer, and they had gotten in a car accident. She and her husband, and she had broken her ankle. And my cousin, who lives down in Texas, was having a 20th anniversary for he and his wife, for him and his wife. And um, he, they had a limo, and my aunt was sitting in the limo. And um, Aunt M was, she was sitting in there with her cane and her ankle all wrapped up. And my uncle, who was getting Alzheimer's at the time, crawled in over her and stepped on that broken ankle. <laughs> And I'll, you know, she she looked at me and she said, my real name is Jill. She said, you know, Jill, she said, you could stick them up your butt and they'd still step on. <laughs> and I, I'll never forget 
laughing so hard at my aunt and thinking, you know, I guess it never stops. I guess it's just like, you know, all the way to the end, you have these fun things that happen, like, you know, terminal cancer and, and a broken ankle, and then your husband steps on your ankle getting in the, in the I mean, it was just like one of the, I just, I'll never forget. And she just looked up at me. And she just, but, uh, oh my gosh. I You know, my family, I've had the most amazing family. They are really crazy people and I really love them <laughs> and you know they all they're all very very different from both sides of the family um, very very different people but they've all had um, you know I feel them in me sometimes a lot of mm-hmm. them have gone on now but I feel them around me sometimes and some of the things they you know that they would say and um, just I don't know they're, my mother and father my mother was incredibly a strong woman. She was widowed three different times and um, went through that trauma so bravely wow. and was an incredible role model. At 80-some years old, my mother could outdance me, you know, <laughs> stay up later. I mean, she was like, uh, she was amazing. I mean, my family doesn't get old at 80. They just get wiry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. She was honestly, she could run around. And I'd be exhausted because I don't. You know, my mother used to love to gamble. I mean, she'd be come up here to Reno, and after two weeks, her right arm would look like Arnold Schwarzenegger when they had those things that you pulled, and it would be. And she really liked that. She really enjoyed it. Well, I hate gambling, and I find it really boring. So I'd go with her, and I mean, I'd be done in about. You know, I'd put in my twenty dollars, which is all I'm willing to gamble. You know, it's. I'm really glad that I never got into that because uh-huh. had I done that, as many years as I've worked for casinos, it would have been a bad thing. Um, it, and as close as you live to one. Oh, I mean, living in Reno, I, it, it'd be, you know, but I have friends who win all the time. I have friends who uh-huh. win at the airport. It's amazing. But I'm never tempted because I know that doesn't really work for me. So my mother, you know, would be, and she'd be raging until 3 o'clock in the morning and say, Mom, aren't you hungry? Aren't you tired? No, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, why do you want something to eat? You're always thinking about your stomach. You know, you couldn't get her. It was it was amazing to watch. And if we'd go on a walk, my mother was inexhaustible. So I have I have these incredible role models. Wow. Uh, my father was a redneck. He was a guide on a hunting preserve, just a little bit to the right of Attila the Hun. And, uh, you know, an NRA lifetime member, stuff like that. And I'm so glad that I, that he was my father. I learned so much from him. And I learned my father and I were very, very much alike and very, very different. Wow. You know, I, um, I don't eat meat, not because I don't like it, but because I could not walk up to a cow and kill it because I wanted a hamburger. <laughs> I can't do it. And if I can't do it, I shouldn't eat it. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. You know, if I couldn't actually go and do that, then, you know, you know, to, to actually take the life of something. And um, my father would be horrified if he knew that. You know, he would not know what he had given birth to. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, what is wrong with her? But actually, I've never been that hungry. You know, I mm-hmm. there's so much other stuff to eat. Mm-hmm. Do I look like I've missed a meal? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> no, twiggy, I ain't. But um, you know, it's it's like 
it's amazing to um to see where you've come from i mean we i grew up there were always animals um i grew up on squirrel and quail and rabbits and everything we didn't have a lot of money so we ate what my dad killed you know deer he and my mother used to shoot deer they'd both get a license and you know, she'd shoot one and he'd shoot one, and we'd have enough meat for a long time from it. And, um, you know, there'd be pheasant and, you know, all manner of stuff, um, wild game that we ate and grew up doing it. But I never wanted to hunt. It always, it always, I always was aware that something had died. You know, something had to die for me. Mm-hmm. And I still eat, you know, certain things that I think I, I mean, I can still fish. I can kill a soybean heartlessly. <laughs> with hardly any, with hardly any feeling at all, I can kill a soybean. And I still eat chickens, though. I don't know if I could actually, my grandmother used to uh, wring their necks and, you know, take them out on the chopping block and chop their heads off. And the thing would run around with blood spurting. And I used to, it just used to freak me out. <laughs> you know, I'd see this go Oh my God! <laughs> you know, and I don't. Other people don't seem to be bothered by it, but I am. So I, I just live my own. I know I'm an alien. I, <laughs> I, I've just come to the uh, to the realization that you know I may be in a human body, but I am not from around here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, I have to ask you um, about the song that I played at the very beginning of the show. You know, my favorite song of yours is the cover you did of Paul Simon's "Still Crazy After All These Years." Whom I thought um, was someone else when I heard it. Isn't that a story? It really that, is true. I, I, that was the weirdest <laughs> thing. I, I'm hearing it. I'm going, gee, that, that girl, I like the way that girl. And I had no idea that it was me until I went, oh, my God, that's my recording. <laughs> At some well, point I realized, because my voice is way lower than that now. As you can hear from the, the later recordings. Absolutely. But, you, you know, we're, ta- I mean, we're talking about, what, 20 years ago, so... Yeah, and it's the difference between a violin now and a viola. You know, before my voice was like a violin, now it's more mm-hmm. like a viola. I really mm-hmm. like it now. It's not as shrill, and um, I, it pleases me now. Okay. Um, it's, but it's like playing with a different instrument. <laughs> it really is. It's uh-huh. The lower voice is much more delicate than that high voice. Wow. That high, my voice was indestructible. In the old days, I mean, mm-hmm. I could sing for hours and days on end, and never. Mm-hmm. Now it's a little more delicate because to hear the low tones, you have to push harder, and some and sometimes if you can't hear very well, it's very easy to strain that lower voice, mm-hmm. which is the voice you hear on the Last Wild Place anthology. That's exactly most of those songs are sung, you know, with the new voice, and, and honestly, it's several steps lower. Yeah, I still have a, a big range, but it's it's just starts a lot lower. Yeah, but it's still absolutely recognizable, and it's totally you. <laughs> Who else would have a raggedy old voice like that? <laughs> Who else would dare to sing? With <laughs> so the cover of "Still Crazy" was that your idea, or was that Jimmy Bowen's idea? No, that was my idea. I always liked that song, and I thought it was so appropriate for me because, um, like I said, I'm different. <laughs> and I still am, <laughs> and I've, you know, succumbed to the idea that I always will be. Uh, you know, not much, not much I can do about it at this point. It's just, you know, where it is. And uh, but the one thing that I will say to anybody out there who, like me, is a little left of center, stay there. Absolutely. 
stay there because not everybody can be there. Not everybody would ever want to be there, but but I think we need it takes all kinds of people to make a world. You bet. It takes all kinds of opinions. I I have a a tennis I get along I'll get along very well with a lots of, lots of different kinds of people. And I think that's one one thing of having, you know, my dad being like Archie Bunker. You know, was it? Was, I mean, I un- I really understand him. Mm-hmm. My father used to say, "Don't ever let him register your guns, because if your guns get registered and the government decides to do something like happened in Germany with the Nazis, they will know exactly where all the resistance is, where the guns are." So and the, so, I really understand the NRA. I understand people wanting to keep their guns. Mm-hmm. They remember my father was a, in a German prison camp for a year and a half. He was shot down over Germany. Uh, out of a, he was a tail gunner in a in a fighter, and the plane was shot in half. And he and his buddy jumped out with their parachutes, and his buddy was his best friend was shot dead on the way down. He had to identify that body, and then he was mm. taken to a German prison camp for about a year and a half. I really understand what his feelings were about guns. And my father made his own bullets. He made his own arrows. He was a double wow. A class archer and an expert marksman, rifleman. He did all kinds of riflery classes and gunsmanship classes for people. They made their own bullets. I mean, it. He fletched his own arrows. And at the end of his life, he, you know, he he used to like to get. He used to like to hunt with the bow and arrow because he was so good with it, and he thought it was a better hunt, more challenging hunt. So I understand hunters. I understand. Um, I understand the the whole NRA point of view. I understand a lot about uh, thinkers that are far more right-wing than I am. I do understand it, and it allows me to get along with a lot of people on both sides of the fence, way left and way right, I, because I really do understand a lot of the, the differences, and I understand where we can come together, and I think it's why um, I, I consider myself to be a fairly successful advocate, um, and I think that's one of the reasons. So I, I'm very grateful for my upbringing and, and you know, very grateful that I was I was raised around people who were very intelligent. Um, we didn't have a lot, but my mother was uh, my mother was the valedictorian of her high school. My father was a very bright man. They were very intelligent people, um, but not college educated people. I was yeah. really the first one to go to college, so um, I, I just I just am really grateful for everything that I've experienced in this life because it's allowing me to do work now that um, in a way that I probably wouldn't have been able to do had I been raised in a different type of environment. Absolutely. And you know, it's so great that you're that you're you're using your celebrity and your name to kind of give back in a in a very positive way. I think it's, it's a lot really of terrific. Us, a lot of us do, Brendan, and I'm and I'm really grateful for. I mean, a lot of celebrities are doing wonderful things now. I'm just so glad, and I think what T. Boone Pickens' wife is doing with the Wild Horses is a bloody miracle. You bet. I mean, it's just a miracle. 
uh, how someone could take 33 I can't imagine taking on a a project of that magnitude 33,000 horses wow. 33,000 wild horses <laughs> I mean it's it's inconceivable it's it's you know it's it's unbelievable is what it is it truly is. I hope it, and I hope it comes to pass. I really do, yeah. because it is so unbelievable. It's like, how in the world would you manage that many animals? Well, somebody like T. Boone Pickens has the wherewithal to do that. Absolutely. And I think it's wonderful that some of the people who have made a lot of money in this country are actually thinking about alternative sources of energy and renewable sources of energy and... and um, uh, you know, conserving resources and cleaning up the air. I am really, I think that's all really very important because, and that comes from my father. I have, have, you know, a lot of the NRA, a lot of the people in the National Rifleman's Association are very, very, very um, good conservationists of the land. They're very uh, uh, interested in clean water and clean air and the proper number of animals to the the environment and not polluting the environment. My father smoked, and when he smoked out in the woods, when he was finished with a cigarette, he would completely take that cigarette apart, pull the filter, the little fibers from the filter apart, pull the little paper Uh that was left in little little pieces, shred (laughs) the filter, and bury it. Wow. I was never allowed to throw anything out of a car window. Mm-hmm. If I had a can of soft drink, I was going to be carrying that bottle or that can until I found the proper place to put it. <laughs> I was not allowed to put it down anywhere. Mm-hmm. I was not allowed to throw a hamburger burger wrapper on the on the ground. We used to love to go to the movies because in the movies you were allowed to throw everything on the floor. Back in Pennsylvania, that was just what you did. You know, you finished your popcorn, you just dropped the thing on the floor. Now, of course, I don't do that. But then, as kids, it was you know, is what you did. Uh huh. Do you remember that? Absolutely, I, I do. Do you and, remember and, when it was okay to do that? And you know, kind of sticking your gum on the on the uh, on the backside of the of the chair or the the underarm of the of the of the chair arm, and absolutely. <laughs> and candy wrappers on the floor. I mean, the absolutely. only place you could do that. You know, with and I don't even know if my father knew that we were doing that, but everybody did that back then, and it was the one place where you could just be a slob and it was okay. But a lot of people do that in the world now. You go into a city. I rode down um, into California on Highway 100 not long ago. There was so much trash mm. on the side of the road. I couldn't believe it because California has always been sort of at the forefront of keeping their highways really beautiful and scenic and clean and everything. And I'm telling you, it was the worst mess. I even saw a couch out on the side of Highway 100 going down wow. through California. I was appalled. I thought, why don't we get the guys that are sitting around in prison, twirling their thumbs and working out on weights, to come out and do road crews and clean this mess up? Why, why we do not use those prisons and, and get those men out working. Mm-hmm. Everybody who's in a prison should have a job. I really think it's crazy that they don't. Mm-hmm. I think it's insane. They well, we just can't manage it with the money. Well, how stupid! You know, if it's properly managed business, it's going to make those guys from going crazy and thinking about how to do their next criminal act. You know, absolutely. People, I really, I um, we started a, a, a program in the prison here where the men 
um, train wild horses. They, you know, they have to be a they have to be an honors prisoner to get into the program. But they get into the program and they learn how to train these horses, and then the horses have a better chance at being adopted. It's the most successful rehabilitation program that's ever been in the state of Nevada. I'm proud that we bought the first um, the first panels uh, uh, to start that program and helped to get that program off the ground. Wow! You know, we partnered with the Department of Agriculture and and uh, some of the other groups, and we all bought all these panels so they could have a place to keep the horses and. You know, it um, then it took off. The Bureau of Land Management actually moved in, and they pay good money to get their horses trained by these inmates, and it's become a profitable business for the for the prison. Why that isn't happening everywhere in all prisons is insane to me. Absolutely, and you know, so many of those guys. I say guys. I mean, it's it's women too, but but so many of those people, you know, come from situations where they they weren't taught. You know, basic work skills, basic interaction with human skills. I mean, you know, so many of these people can come from broken homes and you know, kind of scratching to survive and you know, doing what they can. And and oftentimes, what they can was was illegal activities like you know, doing drugs, killing people, you know, things like this. And so, well, it's a, it's a lot easier in the in the in the ghettos. I mean, to to be selling drugs than it is to try to go and get a job when you exactly. don't have skills to do it. You know, I mean, they'd be stupid not to do that. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's and and it, it does. I think prison should be run more like the military. I think there should be a sort of a boot camp thing that they go through when they get there. I, it's horrible to think of, but but a lot of people need that. A lot of people who are in criminal activities need that. Don't kind they don't have that basic discipline? They need that discipline. Once they have that discipline, I think every prisoner should have a job. Absolutely. And have to do it eight hours a day just like everybody else and have a couple of days off a week. I think it should be just like the outside and run like a business and and uh, and regulated by the government, but probably privatized. Do you know, um, privatized and then measures taken so that cruelties um, don't happen because there are horrible uh, cruelties that happen in prisons. I don't know why they don't do it. Maybe it's – did you see the Shawshank Revenge uh, – um, heck, I can't even think of the name of the movie. The Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been years and years, but yes, absolutely. Well, do you remember that they started these prison industries, and then the warden, of course, was making all kinds of money on the side? Maybe <laughs> it's the corruption of the officials that keeps prison uh-huh. industries from happening. It could be. I don't mm-hmm. know, but it actually could be that. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's what happens. That the reason that they don't have more work programs. Yeah. I think it. I think I really think there should be boot camps at prisons, and then and then work programs. And I don't know why that. I haven't had time to advocate for that, but that's what I think <laughs> should happen. And I think they should earn their own keep in there. Why should the taxpayers have to pay for somebody who's just screwing off? I mean, exactly. it's just you know, I I resent it, and I don't think it's necessary. And I think a lot of the young ones could probably be turned around. There are monsters in there that'll never be able to be anywhere in the private sector and need to be in prison forever. There are monsters. They are born the way they are, or they are created that way by terrible environments, and they can never be anything but monsters. That is just how it is. And that is, I, you know, I learned that from, from inmates, mm-hmm. from talking to inmates. 
in San Quentin. I've done several. I've done a bunch of shows for Bread and Roses, not in a long long time, but I used to go into the prisons and do that. And uh, I like to talk to the prisoners while I was there. I like to talk to the people and find out, you know. And I have several friends who've won run music programs for prisons. And I think that there should be stuff like that. It should be a not just a place where you get punished. It doesn't work, you know. That's why yeah. we have so much overcrowding in in prisons because it's not we're not doing enough rehabilitation. And I don't think it has to cost a lot either. I think they need mm-hmm. to pay for it themselves. And that's why you have so many repeat offenders because they get out and mm-hmm. they've learned nothing in their in their in their time in there, and so they just fall back into their own patterns. Yeah, and they have lots of time to think about it while they're in prison. Exactly. You know, and the bottom line is, if you learn to do something good and you feel good about yourself, you know, you're probably not going to go back to some stupid lifestyle that's just going to get you in prison again. You know what I don't understand about criminals is a lot of them are really smart. A lot of the guys in there are really, really smart. Mm-hmm. And why they keep repeating that <laughs> is, I mean, I just don't understand it with smart people. You know, because some of them have 160 IQ. Mm-hmm. You know, why would you keep, you know, if you keep doing what you've always done, you're always going to get what you've <laughs> always got. You know, <laughs> of course, I guess I guess that applies to all of us, you know, in our own, in our own blind areas. I have none, of course, being totally enlightened, but <laughs> some people may find that hard to believe. But <laughs> well, I tell you what, I have monopolized your time for way more than I intended to, and I seriously appreciate you stopping by to chat with me for a bit. Well, your people are probably wishing you'd play some music. <laughs> I hope this is edited. I hope it doesn't go out live, because I've been blabbing for an hour, but you probably know... Uh, you probably know um, about as much about Lacey J. Dalton as you ever need to. <laughs> um, and I have really appreciated uh, your interest, Brendan, and I'm I'm really uh, grateful for the time. Well, let me tell you something. We only scratched the surface here, and, and uh, I, I certainly hope this isn't our last conversation because you are welcome here anytime to talk about anything you like, anytime you like. Ooh, thanks, Brendan. <laughs> oh, now you've done it. You fool. <laughs> Listen, as I said, I'm a huge fan of yours and have been for literally the entirety of my life. And and uh, this was this was truly a great honor for me to, to speak with you today. Well, I'm thrilled to talk to you, and I hope to talk to you uh, again soon. And, and God bless all your work. Thank you so much. You know, uh, I know you're, you're going out all over the world, and you know the world is becoming smaller and smaller. Day by day, we're becoming more of a world community, and I'm so we grateful certainly are. for that. You know, I'm so grateful for that. So, um, uh, adios. <laughs> um, all good things to you, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Before I let you go, could I get you to do a quick promo for my show? I sure will. You can say anything you like as long as it includes the words Lacey J. Dalton and Brandon's buzz. <laughs> and is it Brandon? Because I have you as Brandon. No, yeah, it's Brandon. B-R-A. B-R-A-N-D-O-N, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm no, it's... calling you Brendan. <laughs> All right. Sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. It's fine. Okay. I answered Hi, anything, so it's... All right. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Lacey J. Dalton, and you are going to have the time of your life listening to Brandon's Buzz. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much. You bet, Brandon. Thank I seriously you. hope that, you, that you'll keep me posted on, on the... Uh, the legislation bill with the wild horses, because I, I really want to know how this turns out. 
Well, by all means, call me anytime you want. I certainly will. And you're, uh, right. as I said, you're welcome here anytime. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brandon. Have a great one. You too. Lacey J. Yeah. Dalton, everybody. All right. Bye, all. <laughs> so that's Brandon's Buzz, February 25th, 2009. It's in the can. Uh, we're off tomorrow, Friday morning. I have a great show planned with Nia Peoples. That'll be at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Uh, and do come back for that. She is absolutely fabulous, and I cannot wait to speak with her. And next week, it's a full week. There's Anna Eggy on Monday. There's Rayal Andrews on Tuesday. There's Courtney and Nellie, the webmasters of the One Tree Hill Web website. That's on Wednesday. And I've got Claire Massey from Tammy Show on Thursday. And it's going to be just a, a thrilling week. I can't wait for all those shows. So uh, come on back. You can find me at www.blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. Uh, you can get all the info. All You can listen to past shows. You can download past shows. You can also download past shows as podcasts on iTunes at the iTunes Music Store. I'm on iTunes, guys. Type in Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes search box, and uh, my podcast will pop up, and you can subscribe to the show, or you can download individual old episodes. So by all means, come on, come on and, and uh, check that out. You can also check out my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There is a full radio archive of old, of old past interviews, and there's also information about what's coming up on the show. So uh, by all means, check that out. Um, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz is this show's website. You can email me from there, and you can uh, leave comments, you can rate the show, and you can listen to and download old shows. So by all means, do any and all of that. You know, the guys at Blog Talk Radio, they really pay attention to stats, comments, ratings, and uh, and and uh, listens and downloads. They they pay attention to all that, and that's all crucially important to keeping me on the air. And uh, that's very important because I want to stay on the air. I'm having the time of my life with this show and talking to great people like my guest today, Lacey J. Dalton. So come on back Friday morning, Nia Peoples, and a full week next week. Brandon'sBuzz.com or BlogTalkRadio.com/slash/Brandon'sBuzz. Come on by, and you can get all the information. Please stay tuned for Brandon's Buzz. I'm Joan Van Ark, and the buzz is hot. This is Gloria Loring, and I've just been buzzed by Brandon, and I gave Brandon some buzz. This is Maya Bialik, and you are lucky enough to be listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Gordon Thompson speaking. And I want to tell you that I have appeared on Brandon's Buzz, and I had a great time. And I think you will, too. So please, log on and have a listen.